How to use this thing, man, Razor? Beretta nine millimeter. Shit happens, man. <laughs> yeah, you were right, Frank. You never know what maniac's gonna pull out a gun. Well, the only maniac I know is you. Hey, you know what we need? We need a friggin' map. Who carries a map? Thousands of unarmed people who drive Hyundai's carry maps, Ray. Now, how about getting us out of here? It's not my ride, but I think there's a map in the glove compartment. Right here? No, the one right to the right of it. Right. Well, here it is. I mean, you're a little closer than I am. Oh, hey, hey. Oh, who, who was that? I don't know. I think we hit something. Uh, maybe a dog or something. No, we didn't. Ray, I felt it. I think we hit someone. You know where the hell we are? They're scam artists, okay? Now they make a living doing this. Doing what, Ray? They run out into the middle of the street and they pretend to get hit and they blow your head off. Somebody might be hurt, Ray. Frank, what are you doing? I'm gonna check it out. What's going on, listeners? Hope everyone's doing A-OT as we enter another chaotic holiday season. And with that, welcome, everybody, back to an all-new episode of the Film Effect Podcast, giving you full-effect deep dives for the Film Effect Archive. Wasting zero time and getting right into things, this is an episode that's very much long overdue, as it's a film that I've known I've referenced on this podcast almost a dozen times since its inception. It's also a title that includes an extremely popular and groundbreaking soundtrack that features hip-hop artists collaborating with rock and heavy metal bands for the first time since Aerosmith graced the stage with Run DMC. And I'll tell you what, the soundtrack might be even more popular than the film itself because anytime I bring this bitch up, nine times out of ten, somebody will mention the soundtrack in some capacity. But... Back to the topic of conversation, it's a simple story of wrong place, wrong time, and it features a very impressive cast of familiar faces. So without further ado, I'm Ed. And I'm Corey. And kids, this is Judgment Night. Nobody is taking dates. It's a bunch of guys going to a boxing match. That's it. Why are you looking at me like that? Because I know your friends. <laughs> They're the hormones of high school kids. I'll be home early, okay? Promise. What <laughs> do you say, fight fans? A night out on the town. A heavy traffic jam. Tell you something, I'm not gonna miss this fight. And one wrong turn. We've circled this block about 300 times. Yeah, enough of this scenic round. What the hell was that? He's been shot. They're coming after me. You gotta get me out of here. We can't just sit here, okay? Come on. They got guns, John. You broke rule number one. Do not steal from me. Oh, boys, rule number two, no witnesses. Come on! Go, go, go! Where the hell are we? What are we going to do? What do you think of the neighborhood? The cops are going to be here any second. The cops are not coming. What's up? You punks crazy or something, man? Chill out, man. We're just looking for some citizens. Don't move, don't whisper, 
Don't even breathe. These guys don't give up. Oh, Frank, is this your wife, huh? I get a wife and a little girl, and I will get back to them tonight. Let's show these bones what we got. You better believe it. You're just another victim. You're just another victim, kid. Hey! You're just another victim. You're just another victim, kid. Emilio Estevez, Cuba Gooding Jr., Dennis Leary. You know, Frank, after I kill you, I think I'm going to pay a little visit on that wife of yours. <laughs> Judgment Night. You coming? On video cassette. Get ready for the season's hottest new action thriller. You're just another victim, kid. Judgment Night soundtrack features 15 gold and platinum artists, including House of Pain, Run DMC, Sonic Youth, Faith No More, and Pearl Jam. Emilio Estevez, Cuba Gooding Jr., Dennis Leary. There comes a time when you've got to take a stand. Judgment Night. On video cassette. In Judgment Night, four young friends, while taking a shortcut and route to a boxing match, witness a brutal murder which leaves them running for their lives. You know, there's something to be said about the awesome time I always have watching this flick. To best describe it, at least from my personal point of view, it's exactly like riding the roller coaster Sky Rush at Hershey Park. It wastes no time getting started, and once things kick off, there's no stopping. Lots of ups and downs, maybe a couple zero-G moments as well, but ultimately, when it's all said and done, you know you just had a good time, and nothing in the world can take that away from you. This film just gets going, and there's so many different things to talk about as well. Really looking forward to this one, but how about you, Corey? Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is a fun movie. I, I've always enjoyed it. I, anytime I talk about it with anybody, I, I think it brings a smile to their face, because, like, would I, would I say it's a great movie? No, I think that's a stretch, but I think it's a fun movie, and I think especially if you're our age. Yeah. It's just like a flashback to a guy, a, blah, guy bond bygone era like it's just so interesting like that early 90s period because it's technically the 90s but we're still kind of like in 80s mode because like if i just watched this movie and had no idea when it came out i would say it's like a hundred percent like an 80s movie but it's just kind of like that 80s hangover into the 90s which i've always appreciated and obviously i think we both do because that's when we grew up so that's when yeah uh you know we were first getting into movies so uh yeah i've always had a good time watching this movie it's kind of I don't know if it's a guilty pleasure, now, but for me, that's kind of what I would almost call it. So it's a it's a good fun time. Yeah, it's it's a solid fun time indeed. So let's kick things off the way we always do. First time viewings. Oh my goodness! I remember the first time I saw that picture. I thought it was just wonderful. So for me, this was an HBO viewing that I saw one night. I just caught it on the channel that back when I was going through, you know, a lot of the premium channels at the time, early '90s and whatnot. And yeah, this just came on and I was just watching it. I think I might have watched it like from at some point of the movie, but it, it just it goes to show because like I said, you know, it, it, I can start the film at any point in time and just got to watch it till the end because I'm just it's it's like that roller coaster element all over again. You know, I just have a lot of fun with it whenever I start. So, yeah. So uh, for me, I don't remember the exact first time I watched the whole movie. I think I caught like the middle of the movie because I, I remember watching it and I had seen Mighty Ducks previously. So I remember watching it for the first time just randomly on TV. It might have been on a premium channel. It might have just been on cable TV. Uh, 
And I'm sitting there watching it and I'm like, oh, the Mighty Ducks coach is running from Dennis Leary. And <laughs> just like, this is enjoyable. So uh, I remember watching the middle part. Like I, I didn't see the ending and I didn't see the beginning with the camper and everything until much later. But um, a viewing that sticks out to me was actually when I was working at Blockbuster. <laughs> I remember picking up the case and I was like, I vaguely remember watching this partly on cable one night. It's like, I need to rent this and watch this. And that was the first time. I really watched the whole thing and had a good solid viewing. So probably like about 25 years ago or 20, sorry, 20 years ago was my first like full viewing watching it. Yeah, it wasn't long after that first time I saw it that, of course, I watched it again because it was always one first and foremost. But it, it, it just I always enjoyed watching it whenever it came on. And, um, you know, this is back in a time when, you know, there was no on demand. You just pretty much were at the weight of HBO, you know, whatever they wanted to play is when you could watch it. Because I, funny enough, I never used to, like, I never owned this on VHS. I never owned this on DVD. It wasn't until, like, three or four years ago when Warner Brothers put it out on Blu-ray in their archive collection that I finally picked it up. And, you know, now it's easy to watch. It's always on um, YouTube for free every month. But anywho, let's talk about more of the film in the form of box office receipts. Get receipts. So Judgment Night was released on October 15th, 1993 from Universal Pictures, opening up in 1,543 screens, grossing $4 million opening weekend, fifth place. Uh, second weekend, it dropped off. Not a bad drop off. 38.6%, $2.5 million, eighth place. Total gross, $12.5 million, but the budget, yeah, the budget was $21 million for this film. Doesn't feel like a $21 million film, though. I, I bet a lot of that money went to uh, uh, just actor contracts or whatnot. Yeah, that's crazy. For that amount in the early 90s, and, you know, obviously... $21 million. Obviously, it's like a star-studded cast, but it kind of surprised me, because at the time, I wouldn't think, like, Cuba Gooden Jr. or Stephen Dorff or even Dennis Lurie no. would be commanding a huge salary. Like, Emilio, probably, but everybody else, like Piven, I'd be surprised. No, yeah, you're right. Thinking about it now, 1993, they wouldn't have been huge moneymakers like that. So, damn. I don't, I don't, dude, $21 million. This does, Let me just put it this way. This feels like more like a $10 million film. I would have put this around 8 to $10 million as the budget as far as you know, predicting or whatnot. Because it kind of feels like a Blumhouse film today. Like, Blumhouse would be all over this film. Like, like the hunt, sort of. Yeah. So, but yeah, that's, uh, it's pretty crazy, though. I didn't put the, I didn't think this would be a bomb like that. 12, 12 and a half, so, yeah. Uh, it lives on, though. 30th, 30th anniversary. All right, well, before we talk about the film itself, let's do our pre-dive top five. Rob, it's your turn. Okay, I'm feeling kind of basic today. Top five side ones, track ones. Janie Jones, Clash, from The Clash. Hey. Let's get it on, Marvin Gaye from Let's Get It On. Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit off of Nevermind. Oh no, Rob, that's not obvious enough, not at all. How about uh, Point of No Return on Point of No Return? Lewis, so you can uh, get up a- Shut up, shut up. <laughs> white Light, White Heat. Velvet Underground. Okay, that would be on my list. Though and not on mine. Massive Attack, No Protection. The song All right, top five on the run films. I figured that was a fitting uh, topic. So for me, honorable mentions, I have two. No Country for Old Men and Marathon Man. Um, no Country is kind of a stretch, but I, overall, it, it, it 
just trumps all the films that made the top five list, obviously. But as far as the topic at bay on the run, I don't know. Um, but let's get into it. Number five for me, The Warriors. Warriors, come out and play. Yeah. I fucking love The Warriors. I can't wait for Arrow to put out that uh, 4K Blu-ray next month. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait to finally own a proper theatrical cut of the film. So, how about you, man? Where you at? Uh, yeah, so before I start my five, I thought about No Country as well, but technically, like, I couldn't disagree if somebody said it was an on-the-run movie, but I think because right. it's so segmented with, like, the Tommy Lee Jones segments yeah. and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. It's just tough for me to um, throw that on there, so that's kind of where I'm at on that, because I love No Country as well. I mean, go back and listen to our episode we did with Justin, one of my favorite all-time episodes of the podcast. Um, mm-hmm. Great episode, so... Uh, yeah, I didn't put that on my list either, and I did consider it. Um, that being said, I'm gonna I'm gonna contradict myself here, but I'm gonna put number five, and that's gonna be from Dust Till Dawn. And I know that's like it literally shifts halfway through the movie and becomes something else, but the beginning part really is an on the run movie. And yeah, I, I allow it. I, I, it's just love from Dust Till Dawn so much. Uh, Robert Rodriguez, <laughs> uh, Harvey Keitel, George Clooney um it's just such a great movie just so fun and like i love you know obviously the vampire second half is awesome but i also love the beginning part with the on the run and the liquor store at the beginning with john hawks like i love all that stuff too and that's just like a classic on the run movie and i love the banter between clooney and tarantino in the beginning so i wanted to throw it on there because i'm such a huge fan of that one and uh you know i even love the beginning parts as well so even though it's only an on the run movie for about 35 40 minutes i'm still gonna throw it on there you know i love faking people out with that film like i'll put it on because now it's you know going on 30 years itself and there are still people out there that don't know about this movie so when i have them in my you know my, my possession or whatever um i had them in company i put it on and just don't say a word and then just wait till they get to the bar and all shit goes down it's just it's it's like i love getting reactions you know it's great anyway number four for me is the fugitive speaking of tommy lee jones just a fun movie overall i can't wait to cover it on this podcast it's inevitable we got to do it but um (laughs) yeah yeah i've always loved this movie since day one that too is celebrating its 30th anniversary this year um so congratulations to that. <laughs> but yeah, it's just like I, 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 the fun is the only thing I can think of right now when it comes to The Fugitive because it's a blast watching it. Not as much as this film, but it's still fun. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. Um, so I'm going to continue the trend of having kind of like a hybrid movie on my list. So my number four. <laughs> you do that. Yeah, my number four <laughs> is The Born Identity. Um, I'm, I mean that that, that counts. Yeah. That's definitely an only one film. Yeah, it is, but it, it's like a mesh of that in a spy movie. Um, only the Born Identity because the sequels. Well, yeah, just the first while one. He, yeah. yeah, he's still on the run in those, but I would say the first one is really the true on the run movie of the series, and uh, just such a great movie. Um, I've always been a James Bond fan, and you know the Born Identity with Matt Damon really kind of brought it into a, a new um century almost. So it, it's really entertaining. Really good movie, um, excellent writing. Matt Damon is awesome, and uh, you know all the sequels are good too. Honestly, I, the only one I probably didn't like was the one with Renner, the spinoff, the 
I forget what it's even called. I watched it one time and wasn't impressed, but um, honestly, it's a solid... Uh, yeah, the the Born Legacy. Yeah, it's a solid franchise, uh, but the first one is definitely on the run. You know, he wakes up, no memory, uh, has super skills, and trying to get away, so it's definitely worth a watch if you like the On the Run or the Spy franchise, or both. Yeah, good, good combo. Yeah, I need to give that franchise a second chance, because I, I, I've seen the first two films, and I just found them to be boring i granted i haven't watched them in 20 odd years you know i saw them each when they first came out on dvd working on blockbuster but i don't know i just like i said i've always found i found the first one boring i might have even watched it twice but again that was way back when and then when the second one came out i only watched it because the girl i was dating at the time jen she was a huge fan of it and she, um she wanted to watch it and it just came out so we rented it one night and like yeah I, I don't know it just didn't hit for me so that being said I haven't seen the other three films in the series but um, maybe I should do it now that um, I'm a little bit more mature so anyway that being said number three right number three now yeah yeah number three um yeah a film that I just watched for the first time earlier this year funny funny enough uh run lola run you ever seen it no i haven't seen G- that one. german film of S- yeah. speaking of born identity um the what's her name the the, the female that the girl from the first two she gets killed off early in the second one yeah i um i can't think of her name i don't know her name right either now. yeah but she stars in it and like it's a really interesting film um it's a, it's a foreign film, and she basically wakes up, and it's. It, I watched it like literally at the start of the year, so and it was my only time of watching it, but it, it had that much of an effect on me that I put it on this list. But roughly, the the plot is like she has to get from point A to point B on foot, otherwise her boyfriend's gonna die. Something about drug money. A, a deal going wrong or something and she's got to get the money from like I said their place to wherever he is in like 30 minutes or something and it's um it's 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 interesting because like it's in sync the time because it, it takes place three um there's three different I don't know if this is a spoiler or not but anyway if it is 25 year old spoiler alert it, it something happens and it's like oh shit the film's over and it's like nope they got she's gonna do it all over again so it's basically her th- th- three different scenarios of her getting from her apartment or their apartment rather to where um the boyfriend is and it's, it's just really interesting seeing how all the uh decisions she makes you know changes you know the story and you know, how everything pans out it's just a really interesting film um had a lot of fun with it soundtrack is awesome and it's just one of those in your face, you know, on the run, literally starts with, the, you know, you hit the ground running when the movie kicks off. It's one of those types. And, um, yeah, I highly recommend it for anyone else who's never seen it. Um, run, Lola, run. Number three for me. So my number three is uh, one that was already on your list. Uh, I think many people would uh, think of it, um, you know, if you burn off this type of movie. And that's The Fugitive. Uh, classic oh, yeah. Harrison Ford. I mean, I've seen it countless times. I mean, if, if you're our age, like it was on TV constantly. Like I remember it, it would be like <laughs> always on some sort of cable channel. I mean, it was just it a, still is. Yeah, it, it was just a huge movie and uh, super entertaining. I mean, Harrison Ford, Tommy Lee Jones. I mean, who doesn't remember the scene in the sores? He's like, I'm innocent. 
I don't care. Like, I mean, I didn't who doesn't kill my that? wife? I don't care. Like, he shows no. He gives zero fucks. Yeah. So uh, it, it's a great movie, a great um, chase movie. Uh, one of my favorite um, of the genre, obviously. And um, I want to mention this. Uh, I didn't put it on my list, but another movie. It's a farce movie. Uh, uh, wrongfully accused. Uh, it's just a parody of Fugitive. Just I'd laugh my ass Leslie off. Leslie Nielsen. Yeah, Leslie Nielsen doing what he does best, and I Great. just laugh my ass off. Like he's in the he's in a bait shop and he's trying to think of a fake name. He's like Buzzum Frog. That's my name, <laughs> Buzzum Frog. Like I'll never forget that for some reason. That seems funny as shit. Yeah, I just want to uh, throw that in there as well. But uh, yeah, for me, number three, uh, The Fugitive. Uh, if you haven't seen it, just click on TNT tomorrow. I'm sure it'll be on. I think right now it's on Max, to be honest. Anyway, number two, Enemy of the State. I, I, I'd i be remiss if I didn't put this on this list. It's I one of my all-time favorites. That. I knew you were going to have I mean, that. dude, it's a no-brainer. I rant about this film all the time. We covered it with uh, the Spy Hards guys, and um, yeah, that's, that's all. Anything else, just check out the episode. And all the other episodes I've referenced this film. So many of them. But yeah, funny enough, it's my number two, not number one. Huh, yeah. Um, my number two is Minority Report. Um, one of my favorite uh, Tom Cruise movies, uh, other than like the Mission Impossible franchise. Um, I love Minority Report. Just such a fun movie. Steven Spielberg at his best. Um, just a great concept overall. I love the whole idea of in the future, there's people that can see, uh, you know, murders, and then you get arrested beforehand. It's like a weird movie too. I love the like the whole ball thing. The balls roll out, come down the fucking marble madness maze. Um, Colin Farrell's good as the um, antagonist chasing um, Tom Cruise. The whole movie, uh, but yeah, just action packed uh, from the early two thousands. Another huge movie. It was kind of like you know you had the Fugitive in the nineties and Minority Report in the early two thousands. Uh, but I'm a huge fan of that movie. I've rewatched it several times. I mean, just a just a solid idea and good solid action chase film. I have never seen that film before, Minority Report. Oh yeah, you should give it a shot. I mean, it's awesome. It's got some cool yeah, stuff. For whatever reason, I've never seen it, so I have to rectify that. All right, that leads us to number one, and I might have done this one time before on the. Uh, podcast but i'm doing it again it's a tie it's a tie it's a tie it's a tie between obviously the film we're about to talk about because i just have so much fun with it judgment night and another film from the that's next year will be the 30th anniversary another film that's been brought up on this podcast numerous times gotta be covered will be covered surviving the game motherfucking ice t rucker hauer gary Busey, f murray abraham it's just a banger of a cast. It's just a, a fun movie. It's about Ice T being a homeless guy who Charles S. Dutton offers him this job to to be a hunt a, a hunter guide or something. And even though he has no experience whatsoever, still takes the offer and they hire him and he goes to the cabin with them in the middle of nowhere and wakes up the next morning to find out he is the hunted. And they give him a one hour head start and it's, it's uh, literally what the title says, Surviving the Game. So I had to put that on this list. It's it's one of my personal favorites. It's a lot of fun. This is just as much fun. I don't know which one I have more fun with, but uh, I've been holding off on it for a rainy day. And next year is the 30th anniversary, so I just might break it out for that occasion. So yeah, number one is, like I said, Surviving the Game. 
and Judgment Night. A twofer. A tie. How about you, Core? Huh. I've never seen Survive in the game. No <laughs> fucking way. Get the fuck out of here. Are you <laughs> kidding me? Never seen it. Wow. Not on my list for a reason, then. I'm, uh, putting, I'm ordering that right now. I forgot that came out on Blu-ray this week. I'm ordering it as we go on. I'm going to... Uh, I'm a little surprised here, though. So my number one, uh, one of my all-time favorites, uh, True Romance. I I, I love True Romance. Uh, Is uh, that on the run movie, though? I mean, they're on the run from the mob. <laughs> Last but I they checked. don't know that. They're just trying to score money from drugs. They don't know that they're being chased eh, until the third act. I'm putting it on there. I like that. Uh, okay, I'll hold it. Because I love the film so much and I love you just as much, I'm going to hold on. I'm, I'm going to allow it. <laughs> So I don't know, it, like yeah, it kind of changes, but uh, you know, it, it's not a like a pure on the run like Minority Report or The Fugitive, where that's pretty much the whole story. Uh, but yeah, at the end, I mean, they're kind of on the lam, and like they're, you know, they're starting a new life. You know, they're they don't know they're being chased right away, but you know, it's a love story, obviously, between um, Christian Slater um, and uh, Patricia Arquette. Sorry, Arquette. I was blanking yeah for a second. Um, <laughs> and they're going across country to California, and obviously it becomes more of a chase movie at the end uh, when the mob comes looking for their drugs and money after what they did to poor Clarence. Uh, but yeah, it, it it it's one of my favorite all time movies. Uh, I just love the movie. I mean, we've covered it. Uh, you've covered it twice on the podcast. I've covered it once. Yep. So uh, go back and listen to both episodes. Uh, just one of my all time favorite films, probably in my top. 20 somewhere or something like that of all time favorite movies so uh true romance yeah it's good again it's kind of like a love story mixed in with a chase movie at the end but that scene between arquette and um god what now i'm thinking tony soprano why am i blank on his name james james yeah, gandolfini. gandolfini yep sorry james gandolfini and arquette that scene there oh my gosh so good one of my uh favorite all-time scenes in the movie as well so uh, go check it out. It's uh, definitely like a love story uh, with a little bit of On the Lamb, but you know, I still throw it up there just because of my love for the movie. All right. Well, let's get to the Film Effect Breakdown. Hello again, friends. This is the Film Effect Podcast. Good morning, Film Effect. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's the end of the game right there. That's World War Three fucking hot recording right now i literally never wanted to punch movie in its face more than i have last night definitely worth your time it's it's definitely worth revisiting 15 minutes in i'm like uh dorothy we're not in oakland anymore it's in 4k buddy check it out so let's get down to the nitty-gritty first off in the form of casting crew rundown all right, so we got Emilio Estevez as Frank White, Cuba Gooding Jr. as Mike Peterson, Dennis Leary as Fallon, Stephen Dorff as John Wyatt, Jeremy Piven as Ray Cochran, Peter Sykes as Sykes, Peter, Peter, Peter Green as Sykes, <laughs> Fallon second in command, Peter Sykes Everlast, <laughs> Everlast as Rhodes, and Michael DeLorenzo as Teddy. So it's a real tight pack cast. But you've got familiar faces all around in some way or f- sort of fashion. The only person that really I couldn't recognize is the actor who plays Travis. Um, other than that, you know, I, I know everyone from something or another. We can start with the four main people, the the, the core four, if you will. Emilio Estevez, Cuba Gooding Jr., Jeremy Piven, and Stephen Dorff. Emilio! Emilio! Emilio and Dorff are brothers, John and Frank Wyatt. 
obviously Dorf's the kid brother of, of Emilio. And he looks super young f- in this movie. He, so oh, young. he is, dude. Dwarf is so young. I mean, it makes sense. It was thirty years ago, and even today, he's not. He's not really that much of an. an, an he's not that much older than me. I he's know, not- but it's just crazy to me because like. Fucking Jeremy Piven looks the same. Like to me, Jeremy Piven know, looks I the same to in this on that. Yeah. as he does in old school, as he does in Entourage. Like fifteen years later, like Piven. I mean, I, I don't Piven's know. The, Piven. He never ages. <laughs> he just looks the same. And even Emilio, like he's a little bit younger, but Dorf. I'm just like Jesus. He looks like a fucking baby in this movie. Uh, the one thing I'll give them both credit for is th- they are very believable as brothers. Their dynamic is just so well. Um, it's it's i don't know what it is man i i don't I, as many times as i've seen this movie i just it's i i find it very believable that these two are brothers just the way emilio's you know stepping in the way trying to be the big brother and and and, and dwarf being the the younger you know leave me the fuck alone type you know you're not my father and shit like that you know it's it's i just think emilio and uh and dwarf just i don't know they, they, they come off as legit brothers so Cuba and and Piven round out the core four. Let's start with Cuba. He's just a typical ladies' man. You know, literally the film kicks off with him, you know, hitting on a blonde. And uh, Piven is just a snake, man. And he does it so well. I think if, of the entire cast, he's like the, perf- the, the, the best cast of the whole film. Like, it makes the most sense that he plays Ray because... He's just a bullshitter, man, and it comes off, and that's just how his character is. Like, I'm not trying to say that Jeremy Piven plays the same character in every movie, but I'm saying Jeremy Piven plays the same character in every movie, so I expect this kind of attitude, you know? So, does a great job. Um, anything you want to add before we go to the villains, talk about them for a little bit? No, I mean, I'll just say, like, you know, it, I agree, like, the chemistry between the guys is pretty good. Um, you know, obviously you don't get much characterization other than like a little bit of Emilio at the beginning with, uh, his wife. Uh, that's essentially it. It's just like very bare bones, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I do kind of enjoy like when they're in the camper at the beginning, uh, going to the fight, like the, the banter, like, you know, I buy that they're friends and everything. And I think all that is pretty Mm -hmm. well done and, uh, enjoyable. So yeah, that, that's all I got for right now. Yeah, they got great chemistry. They definitely come off as legit friends who's, you know, not been in touch for a while and they're getting together for the first time in a while. It, it just, it, I'm buying everything I'm seeing. I guess the, we can talk about the villains and I'm not, I don't have as strong feelings when it comes to this, this group of villains. Not saying they're bad in any way, sort of fashion, but I'm, I don't feel I don't know when I when I see anytime when you know you got Green, Leary, and Everlast together, um, and and tr- just call him by his character name Travis uh, for now. I just I don't know. I, I maybe we don't see them together as much as we do the other four, but like to me, like that that not that I'm trying necessarily trying to say that it they have to have a strong bond because they're, they're they're ruthless villains for Christ's sake. But I don't. I don't know. It's seeing as much, you know, growing up, you know, in Baltimore and seeing shit like The Wire. I guess I'm used to seeing like a tight neck crew, and I don't really get in that sensation when I see uh, Found and his uh, his little gang of men. But that being said, I think um, Everlast Green and Leary are great in individual roles. 
um, Leary as the villain, his uh, his um, as the leader. Uh, this is a time when Dennis Leary was known for his rants, his antics, his uh, comedic stuff, more or less. Because he just had this is the same year as No Cure for Cancer, his stand-up special, which was like huge. Now, one will argue that he's also a thief because apparently he stole a lot of material from Bill Hicks. Just look up his Wikipedia for more details. I'm not going to get into that right now. Um, this is about Judgment Night, and I just think Leary hits it off. This is a guy who I'm used to seeing in comedic roles and more. So like like another role that he does that's that's tight that's different than what I'm used to seeing is Rescue Me I guess you can say yeah Tommy Gallagher uh, Tommy Gavin good show and like one Rescue of my favorite shows I love Rescue Me so much yeah. um just real quick while we're talking about yeah. the bad guys yeah. I'm yeah. not a huge fan of Leary in this movie and it's not so much no, Leary okay I just think he's miscast a little bit like <laughs> I don't know it's why do just, you say that. Because, like, okay, so he's, like, monologuing. He's, like, you know, I'm in line, and I hear someone running their mouth, and they're going, yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking, like, it's he's fucking doing Dennis bit. Leary. He's doing the yeah. same goddamn thing. I'm like, He's doing his bit from, like, No Cure for Cancer. I know, <sighs> I know. And I'm, like, he's Maybe running. I like that so much, I just don't, I see through it. I, I, I think it would have been better with, like, a stronger, more silent type. You know, a little bit more imposing, I guess. So, yeah, I mean, he's not bad in the movie. I like Dennis Leary. Like, I like that movie, The Ref. He did uh, yeah. several years after this. Um, no, like I the said, next year, 94. 94, yeah. I, I love, uh, like, I, we just talked about Rescue Me. Like, I like Dennis Leary. It's just, I don't know. Like, to me, I think that there could have been better fits uh, for, like, the Fallon role. And, I mean, I don't know. It kind of comes off, like, idiotic in the movie to well, me a little bit. Like, chasing them and then just, like, blasting right. people away and stuff. I'm like, you know, you're not really helping yourself here, buddy. Like, I don't necessarily well, buy. He's, like leader of this tough group but it, it it's not terrible i just think it was miscasting i don't really blame leary for it per se for reference so again this is 93 and this was the year that leary blew up like he blew up just i'll i'll compare i'll i'll um break it down for you guys so i mentioned already a few times his uh, his special No Cure for Cancer which was huge it was a huge huge special um, see, it sold a lot of CDs you know it just it it, it was huge um, and then in 93 alone this is when he also broke out and he wanted to just, you know break out from stand up and just do film 93 he was in five movies The Sandlot Who's the man? Demolition Man, National Lampoon's Load Weapon One, also with Emilio Estevez, and Judgment Night. The next year he was in the ref. He was in the director's cut of Natural Born Killers. And he was in a film with uh Mario Van Peebles and Christopher Lambert called Gunman. You know, and then his his, his career kind of just he he had study work throughout the rest of the 90s and even in the early aughts. And then, I mean, Christ, once he signed to do a boozy voice, uh, Diego from the Ice Age franchise, I mean, yeah. he's set, you know? He don't have to do any more films as long as they keep churning and he's still around. But anyway, um, my, my point is, this was a big year and of all the five films that I just referenced, 
this was the only film where he's well, this is his biggest role of the five films, obviously, because Load Weapon One's more of a cameo. Demolition Man, he's like the leader of the underworld people in the sewers. And um, you see him like three or four times throughout the movie. Not a big character. <laughs> not, a, not a big role. Who's the man I'm not as familiar with? I've only seen it one time, and it was when I was younger. Um, I just remember it was an MTV film because it had Dr. Dre and Ed Lover from Yo! MTV Raps. And it had a huge cast of various rappers and other people. And of course, he was in it. And then The Sandlot. I mean, we see Bill in what, two scenes in that movie? Yeah, yeah. The that's, father. That's my first uh, experience with uh, Dennis Leary, honestly. Uh, before okay. I saw a stand-up or anything, was the Sandlot. Because I was, you know, I was a kid with this. Right, uh, right, right. That makes out. sense. And then right. Demolition Man, probably not too far after. Because uh, <laughs> I remember, it was like, oh, it's the, it's the dad from Sandlot. But yeah, he's, it's like a cameo in that movie. He just like, you literally see him like at the beginning and the end of the movie. That's right. It. So this is his meatiest role. And of course, you know, he's, different he's going against type he's being the villain and just doing something different and i i see your point you know and maybe i'm just biased when i say how much i love him because you know he is doing his bit in a lot of the monologue because he does i was gonna bring it up during the conversation but man he's got some monologues in this movie so anyway uh the film was directed by stephen hopkins who also directed elm street 5 predator 2 blown away with uh the one with uh timely lee jones bringing him up again and jeff bridges underrated film you ever seen blown away where timely lee jones is the mad bomber in in boston yeah yeah i have seen that one yeah it's been a while forrest whitaker is also in it and lloyd bridges uh jeff's father is also in the movie yeah i have seen it yeah it's been a long time like the ridiculous irish accent because for a while i kind of like it had been a while since i had seen backdraft and Mm -hmm. it was like they kind of mixed together in my young memory yeah a lot of explosions in each film yeah but um i've seen backdraft more recently obviously so uh now that's not the case but yeah they kind of blended together for me for a while yeah i've always enjoyed blown away that's a film that i watched a lot since it came out um i remember renting it when it first was released on vhs and um yeah, I've, I've probably seen Blown Away more times than I should, but yeah, underrated film. And then he went on to do the Lost in Space remake 25 years ago, 98, and then he did this horror film in the middle. It's called The Reaping, which I'm not familiar with. Uh, I think it has Hillary Swank, and it was a Dark Castle oh, film. Other I, than that, I have I seen that. Yes. Okay. I well, Stephen seen- Hopkins did that. That was like his last big movie he directed. Yeah, it sucked, but yeah, I, I saw I'm it. I'm sure. <laughs> Anyway, it was written for the screen by Lewis Colick, who also wrote Unlawful Entry, Bulletproof with Adam Sandler and um, Damon Wayans, Domestic Disturbance, and Ladder 49. Baltimore Represent uh, was produced by Gene Levy, cinematography by Peter Levy, who shot all of Stephen Hopkins' films, as well as Cutthroat Island, Broken Arrow, and Torque. Where are you at on Torque, Corey? You ever seen that <laughs> film before? We saw it in theaters. I was going to say, we did see that in theaters. I literally remember we were bored. My first and only time seeing that fucking yeah, thing. We, we were bored and there was literally yes. nothing else to see or do. So we we're like, all right, fuck it. And you know what? It's a terrible movie, but I rewatched it a few years ago. It is oh, enjoyably dumb. Like watching, Enjoyably dumb, right? Like watching two guys, That's um, funny. two people fight on a fucking motorcycle. They're literally having a motorcycle fight. Like, they are swinging the motorcycles around fighting each other. If you want to just watch some, like, early 2000s Fast and the Furious-type cheese, 
that movie is extremely fun. Like it, it's terrible, but it's I mean. A fucking motorcycle goes by and the sign spins around. It's like a fucking cartoon <laughs> in live action, but it's really entertaining. The only time, this is a true story, the only time I ever bring up Torque is when Adam Scott gets brought up in conversation because this was the first film I'd ever seen him in. I've never seen him in anything else. I mean, maybe he was in Hellraiser Bloodline 30 odd years ago, but I don't remember him from that movie. You know, this is the first time like I remember like his fucking face and like he just took off after not long after his this role because like he was like a agent or a copper or something like that and then like the end of the film he he's revealed to be like one of the bad guys and shit and it's all i remember about the film itself is that his uh his ridiculous role as the crooked cop or agent whatever it was but anyway back to the conversation at bay here the film was edited by tim wellburn and music by the legendary Alvin Silvestri, who also did New Jesus Christ, where to begin? The Back to the Future franchise, Romance in the Stone, pretty much all of Robert Zemeckis' work. Um, he did the Predator music, he did the uh the oh, why am I drawing a blank here? He's he's Alvin Silvestri's done just look up his name, kids. He has done so many scores. He's legendary. Uh the Die Hard series, that's another one that he did, so Anyway, let's run down this plot. Frank Wyatt, his younger brother John, and their friends Mike and Ray meet up in their suburban neighborhood to take a road trip in Ray's luxurious RV to watch a professional boxing match in Chicago for the night. With the freeway grid locked, Ray exits the expressway and cuts through an extremely run-down and destitute residential neighborhood. The four friends are alarmed when they accidentally hit a man named Teddy. A long argument ensues regarding contacting the police, which Ray, who had been driving the RV when it hit Teddy, does not want to happen due to the fact that friends had been drinking during the journey. Frank makes the decision to exit the RV to help the victim. Inspecting Teddy, they find that he's been shot and has a paper bag filled with blood money. The injured young man is brought into the RV so the friends can get him to the hospital. The RV is then sideswiped by a car, leaving it lodged in a narrow alleyway. Three dangerous men, Sykes, Rhodes, and Travis, force their way into the window of the back of the RV and drag Teddy outside. Fallon, a local crime lord, arrives and executes Teddy for stealing the money, the execution witnessed by Frank and his brother and friends. Fallon then sets his sights to kill the four witnesses. The friends are chased by Fallon's men into a rail yard. They hide in an old streetcar in which several homeless people are sheltering. They blackmail the four men into handing over their valuables, but are heard by the pursuing gang members. The four friends and homeless people from multiple cars flee. Fallon shoots and kills one of the homeless people, mistaking them for his quarry. Taking refugee in an apartment building, the four friends convince a resident to call the police, but Fallon and his men arrive at the complex, going door to door, terrorizing the occupants to hand over the four friends if they were inside. The resident demands the four friends to leave immediately, as their presence in their home is putting her and her baby, as well as her roommates' lives, in grave danger. The roommate takes some pity and tells the four friends that there's an escape route to another building via the roof. The friends use the ladder to cross over an alley onto the other rooftop, but are pursued by Fallon and his men. Ray stays behind and tries to bribe the drug gang into letting him go. Fallon, disgusted by Ray's tactics and privileged upbringing, throws Ray from the roof, killing him. 
The trio are then chased into their sewers by Fallon and his henchmen. Mike shoots and kills Sykes, allowing them to escape. Discovering Sykes' body, a comment made by Travis annoys Fallon and he drowns Travis in a fit of rage. The trio then break into a swap meet, hoping to summon the police by setting off the building's alarm and are arrested by two security guards. Fallon and Rhodes arrive and kill the guards as the trio hide in the store. Rhodes and Mike engage in a shootout that kills Rhodes but leaves Mike wounded. John retrieves Mike but Fallon shoots John in the leg. The three friends make their way to the bathroom where Frank tends to their wounds. Frank leaves to try to get help but spots Fallon who is about to discover John and Mike. Frank shouts out, calls and found the search for him. A fight ensues where Frank ultimately overpowers Fallon and throws him off the ledge to his death. Police and paramedics arrive, taking Mike and John to a hospital where they are expected to survive their wounds. Frank then exits the building to his waiting wife. Alright, let's talk production. Not a whole lot. Screenwriter Kevin Jarr had written the first spec script for the movie under its original title, Escape, sometime around 1989 or earlier, which was based on a story idea by Richard Dolello and producer Lawrence Gordon, who produced films like Predator and Die Hard. Bought it in January 1990 at the 25th anniversary screening of the film during Cinepocalypse Film Festival in Chicago, director Stephen Hopkins said that Jar's script, which was a lot darker and more violent, was one of several scripts commissioned by the producers with many different writers, including John Carpenter, William Wisher, Randall Wallace, and Christopher Crowe, all writing a draft, some of the different script versions including Bikers in the Desert Outside of L.A. and Rooftop Motorcycle Chases. In the same interview at Cinepocalypse, Hopkins further stated, I was given a lot of scripts, and it was quite a long process. We wanted to work hard to get it right. The final script would be written by Lewis Colick, based on an idea Colick had co-written with novelist Jerry Cunningham. During production, screenwriter Larry Ferguson was hired to do rewrites on the script. That's pretty much all I have. I know in the early 90s, there was a whole thing about urban movies, were big in Hollywood, do the right thing, really sparked that in 89 with Spike Lee, um, or at least I feel that it did. And there was a lot of other urban films, Boys in the Hood, Menace to Society, and a lot of films that weren't necessarily dramas, or, or in this case, action films or thrillers, but... You know, we had comedies that were set, you know, in, in urban um, territories. Like uh, one that comes to mind is a Joe Pesci film called The Super. And yeah, this was in the the early the early nineties. <clears throat> and you know, like I just explained, they got, you got it was a long process. It took about three to four years, but it got commissioned, it got filmed, it got made. But what really ignited this film, and it's not even about the movie itself, it's the soundtrack, and. The soundtrack came out September of 93 through Immortal Records and Epic Soundtracks, and it was a collaboration effort between various hip-hop artists and rock artists. Um, Just to give you some examples, going on the track listing, we got Helmet and House of Pain doing Just Another Victim, Teenage Fan Club and De La Soul, it's actually the song you hear when the film's opening credits occur, Live in Color and Run DMC, Biohazard and Onyx, Slayer and Ice-T, Faith No More and Booyah Tribe, South Sonic Youth and Cypress Hill, Mud Honey and Sir Mix-a-Lot, Frank Dinosaur Jr. and Della Funky Homo Sapien, and Pearl Jam and Cypress Hill. I mean, come on. That's just a 
banger track list right there, just just alone from the artists. I mean, this was huge. The soundtrack, it went on to sell millions of copies. It's still talked about today. It's still praised. Um, it's like a pioneer record. Um, it, another album didn't come out like this until several years later, 97. The, for the film Spawn, that soundtrack, instead of doing um, rappers and rock artists, it was rock artists and like um, and DJs, techno people like Orbital, Tricky, people like that. And um, you know that soundtrack wasn't as memorable as this one, but you get my drift. So yeah, the, like I said in the episode here, like when this film, the topic comes up, a Judgment Night. Most people talk about the soundtrack instead of the film. A lot of people that rave about the soundtrack haven't even seen the film. So, you know, that just gives you an idea of how big this this record was. Um, and that's pretty much it for the production. So, let's get to the uh, full effect film discussion. Take it away. Alright, so the movie kicks off to some De La Soul with some slow motion shots of Suburbia, USA, circa 1993. We got Cuba Gooding Jr. getting out of his shiny red Corvette and stopping for a random blonde in the street and we pan over to the Wyatt estate as Emilio Estevez, the muddy ducker himself, I swear to God, goes to leave for a night out with the boys, but his wife Linda is not having it. And wait until the moment he leaves to start an argument. I can relate to this. Oh my God, I can relate to this. And it used to <laughs> piss me off to no end. Fellas listening to this podcast, don't you just hate it when your fucking significant other just keeps it inside and waits until you're about to say goodbye to say, hold up, let's just unleash everything that I have built up inside of me. Like, I hate that. Jesus, I hate that. But anyway, this is not a podcast about relationship advice. Um, oh, speaking of his wife, I wanted to point out that she's played by Christine Harnos. From Days to Confused, she was one of the main girlfriends in the senior class, as as well as Hellraiser Bloodline. Holy shit, I forgot it. That's the second time that goddamn movie's brought up in this episode. Um, yeah, then this is it, because we she doesn't appear at all for the remainder of this movie. This is, you get two minutes of her harking at fucking Emilio Estevez, and then see you later. Hey, why don't you call Peggy? She can come over and watch TV with you. That, uh, that show that you like is on tonight, isn't it? Um, hey, hey, cutie. What's the name of it? Um, oh, come on, Linda. You're making me feel very guilty here. Look, it, it's just going to be for a couple of hours. I deserve this. You know, I haven't been out of the house for over three months. Three months. Gee, that's probably exactly how long it's been since I've been out. Looks like Mike almost has his date for tonight. Linda, <laughs> nobody is taking dates. It's a bunch of guys going to a boxing match. That's it. What? Why are you looking at me like that? Because I know your friends. They had the hormones of high school kids. Don't start accusing me of running around because you You're know that... You're the only one of your friends who has a family. You know, I just think it's time you start hanging out with grown-ups. My friends are grown-ups. Sorry. What the hell is that? Kind of a waste, if you ask me. Um, then Piven shows up with this goddamn microphone on with a Spanish horn intact in his RV. 
This fucking RV is utterly ridiculous. He's oh, yeah. got a fully stocked bar, marble flooring, and a Nintendo with the zapper. Yeah, it's pretty crazy, and it raises a question for me. I never really thought about it before, but okay, so they're driving this camper into downtown Chicago to watch a fight. Right. Where the holy hell are they going to park this fucking thing? <laughs> Like, it, it's not I've like, never ever thought about that before. Holy shit, you're right. Like, where, like, it's not oh, like God. they have a chauffeur and somebody's like driving and the four of them right. are in the back or something. Like, they're all four gonna go. I'm not from Chicago, I'm from Baltimore, which is a much smaller city. And I couldn't imagine taking this thing down to Camden Yards or uh, Raven Stadium and trying to park this fucking thing. I mean, there's parking garages, but I ain't gonna go in there. So maybe that's just like the adult in me thinking nowadays. But where is this thing going to go? I don't know. I mean, they can't even get through fucking downtown Chicago without getting lost. Do you think they're going to know where to park this thing? Like, I don't I'm going to bring it up in a little bit, but the, the, the brain cells on these guys is questionable, at least. And Ray, back to Ray, fucking Piven. He's an obvious con man, so I've got to ask, how the hell did he get this thing? We never find out for sure. How the fuck did he get it? Did he actually legitimately put down money to, like, rent it? Did he con the guy, like he said, to take it out for a test drive on for, for a night or two? Like, how? Like, I don't know, man. Like, what do you think? Do you think he actually is, whatever he told the guys is legit? Or do you think, like, I'm not trying to say, like, maybe he stole this, but he's a, he's a fucking con artist, dude. Like, through and through. Yeah, I how do you think Ray got this thing? I definitely think he didn't get it on the best terms. I definitely yeah, uh, right. Imagine there was some, uh, especially the way he reacts to certain things. Yeah, I, I definitely think there was some lying involved there and some uh, half truths, perhaps. So yeah, I I agree with you. I definitely he comes off as like a low time, like a uh, small time, like I don't know con man, but like you know one of those white collar business type con men where like you know a hustler. Yeah, like a hustler type guy, like, you know, he puts on a good front and acts like he has money, but he really does and he kind of hustles people out of cash. That, that's kind of the impression I get. I don't know, man. Sounds like a con man to me. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, so Emilio's little brother, like I said, John, shows up, played by young Steven Dorff. Hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, Who's the crash test dummy? <laughs> that's your little brother. Right. Don't start. Linda's been busting my ball since I got home. Give him a break, man. John's a good guy, bro. He's a good, he's a pain in the ace. Every time you guys get together, man, it's like a slugfest. That's not true. It's not true. Oh, he, so he, he doesn't piss you off hey, every look, time you guys get together. He's my brother, and I invited him, okay? Hey, Razor Man. That's cool. It's nice. What the hell is this thing? You just get in. Looks like Barbie's oh. Playhouse. Here you should know you're the one who plays with dolls. Hi. What's up? Where you been, oh. buddy? Jesus. Look at this thing. Yo, bro. My big brother actually invites me to go somewhere, huh? You sick or something, Frank? You're late, as usual. <laughs> what do you say, fight fans? Crack open some tasty libation, let's get on the road. Beers are in the fridge, John. Ooh, beer. Yeah, he says their other friend backed out. He was kind of a last-minute addition because the other guys were like, wow, about him coming over. So, Steven Dorff, man, let's have this Steven Dorff conversation. I've always been a Steven Dorff fan. I don't know what it is about him, but I, I, I don't know. Maybe it's something, maybe it's those uh, fucking, um, what were those, those, uh, those ads he used to do? 
that 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 nicotine vape thing. What the hell was it called? Yeah, blue, blue, blue. Yeah, blue, blue, blue e cigs. That's right. Oh man, no. Um, you know, remember him from the gate, and then you know, Power of One and SFW, of course. This movie. I would say The Gate and this were the two movies that, like, got me involved with, you know, his... It made me recognize who he was. And then, yeah, Blade, for sure. Like, that just kind of, like, sealed the deal and everything. Like, he did a lot of, like, minor roles here and there throughout the mid to early 80s... Or the early to mid-90s. But then, when Blade came out in 98, that kind of, like elevated him I guess I mean it definitely got him noticed enough that he was in the next John Waters film Cecil be Demented that they yeah. shot right down the street at Benji's drive-in for the third act um and then you know after Cecil be Demented he was kind of on a roll in the middle in the early aughts like 2002 he had that film Deuces Wild now I'm a defender of this movie I have always liked Deuces Wild it's a movie that I really wanted to see when it first came out. You know what I'm talking about? Like the it's it's kind of like a unofficial West Side Story remake. Yeah, I've never seen it, but I mean I've heard. Oh, about you have it. it? Okay, yeah. I'll have to lay it on you on the, one time. I got it on Blu-ray. But anyway, it's it's um you know him and Frankie Muniz is his kid brother, and um and Brad Renfro. Um, actually, I think Brad Benford might be his brother, and Frankie Muniz is like the neighborhood kid who's on the street on their side. And it's basically them, and it's it's just like West Side Story. It's one gang versus another. You got them versus the Greasers, um, or maybe it's West Side Story mixed with a little bit of grease. And Johnny Knoxville and, and James Franco are, are are um in the film, just very minor roles. But a lot of people show up in the movie, and it's uh, like Stephen Dorff's the leader of the good guys. Like the swingers and then the the greasers, the villains, the leader of that's Matt Damon. Or Matt huh. Dillon. Sorry, Matt Dillon, not Matt Damon. <laughs> <laughs> Roll Matt all together. And then he did he just put out a lot of clunkers after that. Fear.com, which is oh, one of the God. worst horror films I've ever seen in my life. Cold Creek Manor the following year with uh Sharon Stone and, and, and Dennis um Wait. Dennis Quaid, thank you. Well, I'm a just had a brain fart. Yeah, that movie sucked. But uh, real Alone quick, in the Dark. <laughs> I know you're going down the list. I want to bring up one good thing you did. It was more recently, and that was uh, was it season three of True Detective. Awesome. Yeah, I haven't gotten to that yet. I hear good things. He like True Detective. The first season to me is one of the most perfect seasons of any show ever. Like the first season with McConaughey and um. God, my, Harrelson, like that that whole first season was awesome. Second season oh, it's untouchable. First season was so yeah. good. Second, Second season, season so bad. Doo doo, like not really good. I only watched it <laughs> right. the one time. Third season was a return to form, and a lot a big part of that was Stephen Dorff. Like he was great in that show, like the grizzled old retired cop vet. Him and uh was it Marshall Ali, both great, uh great chemistry together in the um series so definitely if you got burned by the second season watch the third season it's worth watching the third and hopefully the fourth will be good yeah recently he's just done a lot of a lot of Lionsgate films like directed video and stuff or some some films got a limited release I mean he kind of made a kind of a minor comeback about 15 years ago because he was in Public Enemies the Michael Mann film with Johnny Depp about you know Dillinger 
um and it's kind of a big role and then he was in that film somewhere with some um um by Sofia Coppola with Ellie Fanning Dakota Fanning's little sister and I like that movie a lot I, I I've always been a fan of that movie since it first came out um it's like the only Sofia Coppola film I do like <laughs> and it's a really good movie too where he's kind of like this washed up actor who lives in this hotel with his estranged daughter who gets dropped off and just just I mean maybe I like it so much because it's just a personal film about you know a father and a daughter just building a relationship together and I guess I can relate with Madeline and stuff but it's a really good movie and then he did that film Bucky Larson Born to be a Star as well as Immortals in 2011 just two huge bombs and then after that it was back down the direct video for him <laughs> And he's pretty much been there since. I mean, not that they're all bad. He was in that film, The Iceman, from 10 years ago, which is really good. Um, with Michael Shannon as the uh, hitman, Richard um, Kuklinski. It's got a lot of people in that film, like Ray Liotta, Chris Evans, Winona Ryder, James Franco. But, um, yeah. And, and then, I mean, it's not a good film, but Leatherface, the prequel from 2017. You know, anyway, I mean, I just saw him in a film a couple weeks ago called uh, The Price We Pay. It was him and Emil Hirsch. It's a horror film that I rented for a few bucks on, uh, on Voodoo that actually wasn't that bad, to be honest with you. But, anywho, um, let's get back to the film. We're en route to the fight. We're talking, we're, uh, bleh. So we're en route to the fight that they're going to, and there's a bit of traffic. It's like, the hell are these assholes leaving for Chicago City Limits during rush hour for? This is timing 101. Like, I don't know. I, I, I guess my only comeback to that is, like Dorf says, good things Piven's RV has a fucking satellite dish. Yeah. And they're watching that thing from in there, stuck in traffic. I mean, I, when you leave for an event, like, you leave early because you know you're going to hit traffic, especially when you're going into the city. I mean, this is traveling 101, like I said. Yeah, it's pretty silly that I think I do think it's ironic. Like they're hitting all this traffic in Chicago, one of the biggest <laughs> cities in the U.S., and then later they it looks like they're in a fucking deserted wasteland. But I do think that's <laughs> kind of funny too. Yeah, I mean, I guess that could be questionable, but again, I I've never been to Chicago, so I have no clue. I, I not even not even enough for me to bring it up and you know warrant a question. So, um, Piven goes to try getting out of traffic, but does so by trying to get into the middle lane which is questionable i don't understand why he's doing that anyway a fight ensues between this guy and his girl in this truck who they're not letting him you know get over rightfully so because if i'm in the middle of traffic and i'm just trying to go straight ahead and some asshole in an rv is trying to make his way in to my lane in front of me like i ain't having that shit personally so i'm kind of on the side with the guy and his girl at this point but He's kind of doing this half-assed for show, but me, I'd be doing it just to fucking stand my ground. <laughs> That's just me. Um, and it leads to, you know, words back and forth, and then Cuba gets the upper hand on the dude by getting out, and, you know, they almost get into a physical physical confrontation, and, you know, Cuba holds him down, and the girl's like, leave him alone, so, you know, Dorf's acting all childish and shit, so Emilio has to lecture him, and, you know, he's the one who initially exchanged words with the guy, so that's why he's getting into a fight with him. Like, you're not my father. Yeah. <laughs> so, Piven then ends up backing up on the shoulder to the last exit that they, that they passed, and he takes that. And 
his bright idea is to drive through the inner city streets of Chicago in order to get to this fight. And um, this, my question is, are any of these assholes actually from Chicago? Because I feel like they're acting like they're way too lost to be from around there. Even living outside of the city, I know where to and where not to drive whenever I'm downtown in Baltimore, especially at nighttime. Yeah, I mean, I guess, like, Chicago is a lot bigger than Baltimore, but yeah, they, they definitely act like they're, like, tourists or something. Like, they don't right. act like they're like from they, the area. Like, they're like, where do we turn? At, like, at one point, he's asking for a fucking map. Like, Ray's got a Nintendo and a fucking 9mm in this thing, but he insists that there's no map until the final hour. Like, he's like, I have no map. I don't know. And then finally, he's like, oh, I think there's one in the console somewhere. It's like, well, A, why didn't you check there first? And B, like, why are you waiting so long to say this shit? Well, real quick, before we move on, I just want to bring this up. So I think younger viewers might have an issue with this movie. And I think oh, part God, of the problem is, yeah. like, A, the logic is flawed a lot of the times in this movie. And B, this is a bygone era. Like, you and I grew up during this time where you weren't always connected. Like, Beepers right. and cell phones were a thing, but it was for like business people. Like you didn't. Well, like, they have a cell phone, they but do. Ray hides that as well. Remember? Yeah, but signal is limited, and all, like it just wasn't a thing. You weren't always connected. Like anybody that was born more recently and probably under the age of like twenty-five to maybe thirty isn't going to really remember this time. So I think kids are going to no. be like, what's the deal? Just pull out your phone and put a status update up <laughs> and call somebody like what, what, what's the deal with all this? Uh, but it, it, that's really how it was back in the day. You went out, you were disconnected. Like you weren't always online right. and you didn't have coverage everywhere. So there was know, no GPS at the flip of a phone at the push of a button. None of that, you know, there was old school maps and atlases back in these days. <laughs> yeah. So it's just like a bygone era, like looking for a map. Like I remember looking at maps when I was younger, but uh, you know, nowadays I feel like kids would be like, "What? Where's Apple Maps or Google Maps?" <laughs> like <laughs> you know, it's just the, it'll definitely be a culture shock, I think, for anybody who's younger watching this. Well, the map reveal is what eventually leads to Ray accidentally hitting someone trying to get out of the way. He insists that the scam artist intentionally jumping out in front of the moving vehicle for set up for a cash settlement, but Frank gets out and checks anyway. Um, <laughs> the they eventually like block away from the RV though. <laughs> I mean, he could have. I thought about that for a second too, but I was like, yeah, maybe he tried to keep on going, but then gave up because he was like, oh, my ankle's fucked or something. <laughs> you know, he is across the street, like out of the way, but you know, he could have just come. He, maybe he tried for a minute and was like, oh no, I can't because. I don't know, they eventually find it, like I said, across the street, and it's it's Michael DeLorenzo from the hit Fox show New York Undercover. Remember that one? No. <laughs> no one else does. That's like the only film that I remember, or the only show that I remember him from. Um, but looking at his filmography, he's got a lot of other work. But yeah, New York Undercover was one for like three or four years or seasons on Fox, and it was... uh. Him and uh, Malik Yoba. It was a there was a crop. A, no, there was a, like a Dick Wolf type show, um, like uptown detective work and undercover stuff. But it was on Fox. Anyway, back to the film. Um, at this point, Pippin's freaking the fuck out. He's faking nine one one calls and claiming the phone line's dead. He's chucking bottles of liquor out of the way and, and he's putting them in bags and chucking them out in front of the um or away from the vehicle. 
You know, I, I can't think of a more perfect actor than Piven for the role. Like, he's just so goddamn believable. And on a personal note, it, it it's my personal introduction to him, and it was perfect. You know, because this is the kind of guy he is, you know. He is Ari Gold, pretty much everywhere. <laughs> you know? It's also cheese. Cheese. <laughs> I, love, I love old school. So they bring De Lorenzo inside, and it's revealed that he's been shot. And he's claiming that they're after him. Pronouns, pal. Piven screaming. It's a madhouse. And then they see cops driving by from the distance. And Cuba is all excited. Takes the wheel of the fucking RV and starts driving for after the police. Swerving around the narrow alley in the process. Then out of, the no, out of nowhere, they get rammed by this car into a narrow alleyway. Which they become stuck in. And... Piven's really freaking out now. Like, he's just fucking going insane. And all he cares about the RV, and now he's accountable for it. He just cares about that more than anything else. And like I said, Piven, you are fucking perfect for this role. And they start heading, or they, they start rather hearing sounds, and Piven hides the gun and claims it's gone after, you know, the crash. Emilio pops his head out from the top of the RV like a prairie dog and then suddenly the back window breaks open and a group of men take De Lorenzo and tell the guys to hang tight and with this we are introduced to our film's antagonist we got 90s villainous character actor Peter Green as Sykes Michael Wiseman as Travis House of Pain rapper and late 90s musician Everlast as Rhodes and then there's Dennis Leary as the main villain Fallon and I just want to know where Fallon got that baller-ass leather coat he's rocking the entire movie. That's a really nice jacket, man. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I just want to say, I love Peter Green. I'm such a fan of his. Dude, like, me too. Me he, too. I mean, he's one of those guys that, like, people might not recognize his name instantly, but, I mean, if you watch movies back then, like, you knew him from Pulp Fiction uh, to The Mask. Like, I, I loved him in that. Even uh, the Martin Lawrence movie, Blue Streak. He's like the bad guy that screws yeah. over Martin Lawrence in Blue Streak. I'm just a huge fan. Honestly, I would have taken him as the main baddie uh, over uh, Dennis Leary. Uh, not a knock against Leary, but I, I think he might have even been a better fit. Yeah, it's 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 great. Um, So Fallon executes De Lorenzo. After lecturing him about stealing from him, and then we get these four separate reaction shots of each of the guys in the RV. Dorf and Cuba are giving off these really overdramatic Academy Award winning looks while Piven and Emilio are just looking onward with the realization of, fuck, my life's about to be over. This is crazy. Sykes, you know me. You see, Teddy, the problem is... No, 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 there's no problem, man. You broke one of his rules. It's not like that, man. Look, I didn't do anything. All you gotta do is tell Fallon. That's all I'm asking you to do. Tell Fallon what? Well, go ahead. Fallon. Look, it's not what you think, man. I, I wasn't run running. I mean, you got it wrong. Look. I got all the money right there. You, you, you can count it. How could you steal from me, Teddy? I, I wasn't stealing from you, man. It's right there. All the money, man. Only thing I hate worse than a thief is a liar, Teddy. You broke rule number one. Do not steal from me. What you thinking about, Teddy? Look, come on, we grew up, man. All you had to do was keep the merchandise moving, Teddy. What was the problem, huh? No company car, not long enough lunches? Why can't you sit here? We're not gonna do anything, Frank. We're not gonna do one fucking thing. Come on, hey, what? What do you want us to do, man? 
you mention my name to the guys in the truck? Did you mention my name to the guys in the truck? Did you mention my name in the truck, I didn't Teddy? Say Did you mention my name in the truck, Teddy? What the fuck would I say anything? I wouldn't rat you out, man. I wouldn't say shit. So what do you want me to do? You want me to let you go? Is that what you want? I let you go, and then I'm supposed to conduct business on the street. Who, who, who's gonna know, right? I mean, who, nobody's gonna tell him. I mean, he's not gonna tell him. I'm not gonna. That's right. No, come on, man. All you gotta do is. Naturally, Neary and his men go after these guys as there can't be any witnesses. Oh, boys, rule number two, no witnesses. And they escape through the front as Emilio starts a fire in the back to stop the men from following them. And eventually from this fire, the fucking whole entire RV explodes like a fucking blast. And that's that. It's like the smart decision, but they're on borrowed time as Leary and the fellas have the upper hand since, you know, they kind of know where they're going. <laughs> so train, they get to this train yard. And I've always liked how Leary just assumes they came to this yard and stops with his guys. Claims he's got a hunch, but even after, you know, that never-ending dialogue or monologue that couldn't drive them out, it's like, no. Only a crazy hobo wanting Cuba's jacket can do that. I mean, it does save his ass in the end, but still. Um, this, yeah, the, so basically the, the, the four of them find a, uh, a train car and they go inside the hide. They close it, and it's all dark, and a lot of rundown trains in this yard, and the the one train yard, or train car that they find happens to have another, you know, a, a group of, of homeless people that are also staying there. It's basically their home, and they know that they're, you know, being chased because everyone can hear Leary because Leary's just fucking monologuing over and over and just won't stop talking and he's yelling so everyone can hear him in the train yard and fucking the, the, the homeless people are basically just saying yeah we'll let you guys stay here but <laughs> you, you, you gotta kick in you know help us out so they're all given you know various things like watches and money and Cuba ends up having the give his jacket off it's his it's his high school jacket cuba's going around we should have mentioned that before that he's running around at first with his high school jacket on like they're <laughs> going to a 10-year reunion or some bullshit it, it's funny like he's wearing that jacket and i swear to god i like to think this movie's like a prequel to jerry Maguire. like i like to think cuba's character <laughs> is the same guy in jerry Maguire because he's walking around with his jacket like he's like this letter jacket and i'm like maybe after this he gets his life straight right plays for the cardinals signs on jerry Maguire. <laughs> and then it's the same fucking character because I don't know. I just always I kind of tied those two together, just obviously because of Cuba Gooden Jr. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that speech that Leary gives is good, albeit way too long and a bit overextended. He spouts the film's tagline: "Don't move, don't whisper, don't even breathe." And there's even an Avon mention. Don't even breathe. Don't you hate it? When you're trying to be quiet and every sound seems to be amplified 20 or 30 times. 
What is that? What's that smell? You guys wearing cologne? Or is that fear? He's taunting them while the guys are simultaneously being taunted by the homeless guys in their train. And it's this it's the movie continuing to throw this urban suburban message at the audience, basically. Yeah, this film has a theme, it rams it down the audience's throat in certain times. So Leary and his men go to leave, but like I mentioned before, a guy wanting Cuba's jacket goes nuts and just eventually starts getting louder and louder, and they eventually hear him and they stop. Everyone runs out of the train and Leary shoots at one person. It's the guy he thinks is Cuba. <laughs> And it turns out to be the guy who's just crazy, who started this whole ruckus. So, Fallon and his men also stumble across Emilio's wallet. It's also important to mention. I know. Obviously, it has all this information inside. What an idiot. Like, I I know he's trying to give stuff to the homeless people. Like, give them the cash out of the wallet. And, like, even the credit card. And the plastic. Like, you're going to give them your ID, so now, like, they have your address and everything like that? Like, oh, my God. I was shaking my head. Oh, and then later, Emilio's like, how do they know my name? I'm like, I don't know, you moron. You're the one giving out your fucking yeah, wallet to people. It's in the apartment where he starts reading off his information. He's like, how does he know my name? It's like, um, reach for your back pocket. What do you feel? Nothing, exactly. <laughs> so Fallon and his gang suddenly catch up to the guys on a foot chase that ends up inside this old city apartment complex. And... During this chase, we see Piven collapsing and begging Emilio not to leave him in the city to die. He's also the only one of the group wearing his maroon suit. Cuba's not half bad with his pleather, his pleather vest, but that's beside the point. Each of them is represented properly based on their attire. As I pointed out, Piven's got the nice suit to make himself look like someone of importance, someone wealthy, your typical con, con man look. Then there's Cuba's presented like the ladies' man that he thinks he is with his nice vest and button-down diamond shirt underneath. Meanwhile, John's looking like he just rolled out of bed and threw on whatever he had on top of his clothes bin, called it a day, because he's the young troublemaker in the group, the little brother of Frank of Emilio's Frank. Speaking of Emilio, he's just dressed like an everyday guy who's excited to spend his night out with the guys. He represents your ordinary fucking people. Ten points for those who understood that reference. And I mean, you agree with that, right? Everything I just said, how they're all re- represented, you know, more or less properly yeah. with their attire and all. Yeah, I okay. agree. Just something that I thought about last night watching this again. Um, inside the apartment complex, these guys get the bright idea of just banging on every single door, asking to use the phone, not caring about how scary and desperate they appear as they're panicking, but. Whatever. Not getting any luck. Emilio eventually comes across the woman who's played by Kane's girlfriend Angie from Robocop 2 while she's dumping <laughs> her trash in the hallway bin. Excuse me. Yeah, what do you want? I need to use a phone. Just hold it right there. Now keep back! Keep back! Please, just listen. Because I'll bust all your goddamn heads and don't think I won't. Clarissa, are you all right? Get out of here, Rita, now. Just, just, just give us a chance. The only chance you're going to get is to get your motherfucking asses in gear before I start swinging. Let's get out of here, man. I told you these people didn't want to help us. Come on. Look, we saw a boy get murdered tonight. And the men that shot him did it in cold blood. And if they catch us, they're going to kill us too. So what, the following you? No, no, we lost them. you, you got to believe us. We're telling the truth. We just want to use your phone Call the police. 
That's it. We're not gonna cause you any trouble. Please. Galen George, who plays her, sadly she passed away from cancer in 2020. And I find it so fascinating that she was a member of the famous comedy group The Groundlings in the late 80s, but isn't known for her work in comedy. She was the love interest in ZZ Top's uh, Sharp Dressed Man video, this, Robocop 2, and Point Break. And outside of various TV drama appearances throughout the 90s, I mean, no comedy. And that's a shame, because the Groundlings are like one of the more, I'd argue, the the, the most famous comedy group out of LA. Yeah. A lot of comedians came from that group, you know, and they hear that she did work. Yeah. And and they hear that she came from that in the late eighties and did no comedy for her, you know, better part of her career. It's just a shame and a waste. If you ask me, not saying that it's her fault. I'm just, I just, it's just a wasted opportunity on both sides, I guess. Um, wasn't meant to be a dig. But uh, anyway, Emilio calmly confronts her in the hall and asks to use the phone, but she retaliates with a baseball bat and a real foul mouth. (laughs) And eventually she gives in, lets them inside, just as Leary and his men find out about the apartment complex. So there was this kid outside on the swing set when the four guys were rushing inside. And of course, you know, they, they pay him some money and he tells them what he saw. So they know they're inside that complex. And yeah, man. Benjamins, all about the Benjamins, such is life. So the men cut the phone lines to the complex and Leary taunts Frank with another monologue with the information that he has on him from the wallet. And they start kicking down doors floor by floor. And this, <laughs> this is where this really crosses into absurdity for me. Like, you know, I, I can see these guys chasing them, like going to a train yard, but like kicking people's doors in like, <laughs> I, I think that's hey a man. Rule number overboard. two, no witnesses. Yeah, I don't know. It, it's a big fucking building, too. Like, that's a lot of doors to kick in. I mean, this is America. Like, you don't know who the hell's got a gun in one of those rooms. <laughs> True. But the sequence ends with Leary walking straight into the camera as it transitions to another shot. And I just find this shot so weird, even though it's so simple. And it's not the only time it happens in this movie, either. It's just him walking into the camera, and that's what ends the shot. Um, So there's also a roommate. Or maybe a girlfriend who's just as vicious as she is, the, the the woman who lets the guys in upstairs. She eventually tells them about this escape ladder on the roof, just as they're about to sneak out into the hallway so the women aren't, are, you know, aren't killed for saving them. Oh yeah, and Piven reveals that he has the gun <laughs> as he pulls oh, yeah. it. He pulls it on everybody. Pulls on yeah. <laughs> Assuming the cops are on their way. And he's like, nope, we're all just going to hang out here until the cops get here. They're on their way. Trust me, trust me. And eventually Emilio is like, there's no cops coming, dude. These guys are on their way. They're going to kick in the door and kill these women. And all they wanted to do was, was help us. You know, fuck that. Talks them down. Nothing else really happens. Nothing, nothing comes of this. It just happens. And then we move on to the next scene like nothing ever happened. And well, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of like that. The whole movie, like they'll have these little scenes where they'll have like this huge thing happen between the friends and then they just kind of move on from it. It happens later too. I mean, I guess you kind of have to, you know, they're on the run. There's no stopping because the next scene is the famous rooftop ladder scene. And man, they get up there because they're told about this, this escape to the next complex. And it's literally two ladders like held together by something. 
and with board and everything and you know it's a real makeshift device that you know kids do kids do this as they say even though kids weigh uh, they weigh like three to four times the fucking uh the weight as these kids so they're going one by one cuba goes first and then steven dorf um and as they're going across you see this i like this i love the uh close fisheye lens shot of them moving across the ladder like Stephen Hopkins is definitely trying to stand out as one of the as one of the more artistic directors I guess in in that time but I mean no but it's just he's doing different things like 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 um Leary walking into the shot to end it and this fisheye lens sort of shot as they're going across which is kind of cool it gives you the sense of uh you know claustrophobia or um um not, not stress panic it's a real tense situation that they're in so anyway Cuba goes and then Steven Dorf and then it's you know Emilio and Piven are left and they're freaking out or Piven's freaking out again because that's what Piven does and you know Ray he's got to remind him like you're the razor you know you know you can do this so Emilio goes first because Piven insists, because Emilio tells Ray to go first, but Ray's like, no, I'll go. I, I'll follow you, I promise. Like, you're going to believe that. Okay, whatever. I, I think even Emilio knows that his friend's about to be dead because he goes yeah. across, and as he's going across, the ladder kind of breaks. So even if Piven wanted to go, I feel like he would have died either way, honestly, because when, like I said, Emilio goes across, and he literally has to be pulled across the other end because, like I said, in the middle of this makeshift thing that they that they the kids have, it breaks, it collapses because of the weight. So Ray sees this, and of course, after that happens, he's not going across. You think he was going across before? Once that ladder starts to break, there ain't no fucking way he's going across there. And all I'm thinking as I'm watching this is, I can almost bet the thing that's going through Frank's mind right now is. I'm never going to see that guy again in my life. Because, enter Fallon and his men. Uh, Piven suddenly turns into a... He turns into Ari Gold. And actually thinks he can bargain his life with these guys. And they jump down. And confront him. He throws the ladder down. And I like how he tosses... After he tosses the ladder down. Emilio gives out this casual... Hey! <laughs> he just goes... Hey! Before Ray reminds him that he's the razor, he begins his tactic and he's keeping himself, he's keeping his cool and he's staying calm and he's puffing his chest out in confidence as he claims that he's got a lot of money. He's got them where he wants them. He says he's got a lot of money and he starts talking about money on the trust that he's actually going to come back and provide them with it. And he's literally bullshitting a bullshitter at this moment. Of course, none of this works. And before you know it, Leary's got the table turned, and it's it, it's it's actually funny because Leary starts fucking monologuing back at him with intensity, and he's just coming off, calling him, put him in his place, basically, about who he is and who, you know, people like Ray are, and, and you know, they come down, they, they think, you know, very little of the city folk and shit like that, and it, it leads to Piven getting tossed to his death. He gets thrown off the rooftop and down to his death. Ain't no acrobat. I'm gonna negotiate with these guys. What with, Ray? I got these guys right where I want them. Frank, come on! I'm the Razor Man, remember? Let's go! Come on! Come on! 
Easy, fellas, hear me out a second. Just give me a chance to talk, okay? What do you want to talk about? Something near and dear to my heart. Money. Money? Money's good. Yeah. Money makes the world go round. Mike, you fire, they'll kill him for sure. And if I don't... Go ahead, start talking. First of all, there's no reason for any of this to be happening. Whatever happened to that kid, I'm sure he deserved it. That's your business. That's your business. Nobody's going to the police. All we want to do is get home. Home. Home is where the heart is, right? Uh, excuse me for a minute. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but, uh, didn't you say something about money? Yeah, I did. How about $100,000 cash? Then we go our separate ways. You can raise that kind of money? Yes, I can. Wow. Let me ask you something. Those shoes, what are those, Italian? <laughs> yeah, they're actually Italian running shoes. <laughs> actually kind of working well for me this evening. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. And your dad's what, he's a uh, stockbroker? Something like that. See, but I'm a self-made guy. I'm a self-starter, just like you. Yeah, that's funny. These guys are always saying that to me. Hey, that's why we hang with them. Self-made you know? men. You just name the place. Tomorrow morning, the cash will be there. In the meantime, how about a little deposit? Mm. May I see that? This is a beautiful ring. Well, let's take a look at this, man. Check this out. Yeah, that's beautiful, man. Take this home to your girl. Tell me something. Uh, how much is a ring like that worth? Retail, it's 15K. But for you guys, Call it down payment under the table. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think uh, I think we can cut a deal here. Oh man, yeah, that's beautiful. There you have it. Can't believe he's doing it. You're pretty good. What's your name? Ray. Ray. Right. Yeah, you're a good negotiator. Cause you didn't even lowball me. I'm gonna come in here and lowball you. Forget about that. Well, you know, cause the thing is, I gotta trust you. There's the payment of the money, and then then there's your friends keeping their mouths shut. You know. No, hold on. We're businessmen, both of us. We have an understanding. Oh. Let me tell you something, uh, Ray. You don't understand shit, okay? Nothing. Guys like you gotta keep checking your pants to see if you got a dick. I got one. You and your friends are the kind of spoon-fed fucking fruit bait that I fucking hate! I don't think he understood me. Shut the fuck up! You speak when fucking spoken to, okay? This is not fucking high school, motherfucker. I'll eat your fucking friends for fucking lunch. You know who we are? No, you have no fucking idea, do you? No, tricks like you, you just sail through life reading about people like me in the newspaper. Hey! You're in a different place now, motherfucker. Yeah, $100,000 might buy you out in the North Shore down here, pussy. That means shit. This is my fucking world. 200000 Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you schooled me. You picked my heart off the ground and <laughs> it's surgically implanted. Ray. Just a little bit and my pulse will be Ray. back to normal. God. Ray. Yeah. I'm getting off this roof in one piece. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> with this death scene comes yet another dramatic reaction from Cuba firing back at them he actually hits the guy Travis in the arm before our main antagonist and protagonist share a look at one another um and I do love Leary's retort here. Leary's like circling back to the film's theme about classes. He gives it right back to Ray and calls him right out. It's fucking awesome, actually. But this whole yeah. scene is just very memorable. It's um pretty intense. Um and it works. It just this whole this whole moment works for me. How about you? Yeah, to me, it's the highlight of the movie. And, um, you know, that first viewing when I only caught part of the movie, this is the part I remembered. Same here. Was the, Same. The, the building and the rooftop scene. Mm-hmm. I remember this. And, yeah, it, it's pretty good. It's definitely uh, one of my favorite parts of the film. And, um, yeah, I just, yeah, Pivot is such, it's like he's not going to bullshit a shitter. And it's like, I feel like it's just like desperation at that point. Yeah, it is, totally. I think that think he can even like make an attempt like personally i would have took my chances on the ladder but uh i guess piven's really scared of uh heights in this one so yeah gotta uh start offering money i'm like yeah it ain't gonna work out too good for you brother but that, yeah to me this is like the scene i always remembered uh when i first initially saw this i i, I really enjoyed it i think it's good to set it up like you know you got the villains mm-hmm. on one building the um, our protagonists on the other so they can kind of get a good look at each other for the first time so yeah I, I really enjoy I think it's a good scene yeah same so Frank and the guys they go and they find themselves hiding out in a sewer they find a manhole that they go into a really small manhole and <laughs> now this actually isn't a bad place to hide but these stupid fucks stick around and share a discussion underneath the manhole until they're discovered by Fallon. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I just found the stupidity in that pretty fucking funny. Because all they had to do was just get down, climb down that ladder, and just move out of the way. Go down the fucking pipe a little more. But they stood right down underneath the ladder, underneath the manhole cover, and then we get Leary with his, hello, fellas, or hello, boys, whatever he <laughs> says. And then it's like, yeah. shit, you guys blew your fucking cover. So, yeah. um, And I used to love this scene as a kid because of the water slides that they're going down. <laughs> like, it's like one level to another going down these water slides. And then... This is also the first of a bunch of fucking split diopter shots that we get of Leary telling his men to split up and Travis showing doubt about finding them. And feeling cornered, Cuba finally wants to make a stand as he takes a pipe and gives this small, you know, proud speech about not needing guns because they have each other's backs. And he says that there's three in them. No, there's three ways in the area that they're in. So, naturally, each of them cover one. They all grab a pipe, and they go to their areas. <laughs> Isn't that convenient? <laughs> yeah. No, 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 it's too bright up there! You might as well stick a bullseye on your back! What are we gonna do? We gotta make a stand. It's our only chance of getting out of here alive. I always wondered how I'd do in combat. Gonna cut it. You ever wonder about that, Frank? Guess I'm about to find out. Mike, they got guns. We have nothing. Screw the guns. We watch each other's back, we'll be 
And somehow Peter Green suddenly creeps in and sees Cuba standing in there with his pipe. Now the impression that it's it's actually thought about this. It's 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 shown terribly in the film. It's presented terribly in this movie. But the idea is that he got in through Dwarf's entrance and Dwarf's playing the chicken shit in this moment. He's scared. He doesn't do anything. He actually goes and we see him hide. And I guess Cuba notices it because later on he calls him out on it, but that's what happens. Peter Green gets in through Dwarf's entrance. Dwarf just goes into hiding and kind of cowers like a little kid. I guess it makes yeah. sense. He is one. And, well, and it, it's kind of funny too because he was acting all tough earlier. Yeah. So it's like a little bit of like, it, I guess... Uh, character growth, like you're seeing, he's not uh, such a tough guy now, you know? <laughs> yeah, and as he's sneaking up on Cuba from behind, we see Dorf sneak up behind him, and then there's another split diopter shot, and then it's Amelia who actually saves the day by stopping Green before he executes Cuba, and in the end, it's Cuba himself who shoots and kills Green, and now it's <laughs> it's three on three now. I, I love Cuba's face, though. Okay, so to me, there's two Cuba Gooden Jr. performances. There's a good <laughs> Cuba Gooden Sherman performance like from jerry Maguire, or when he played oj simpson um or uh what what's that jack nicholson movie he was in uh, something's gotta give oh yeah uh, <laughs> I, yeah. I was thinking boat trip <laughs> nah not fucking boat trip um but there's good performances and then there's bad cuba good junior performances that's why i was thinking boat trip. <laughs> boat trip this um the fighting God, temptations like, yeah, I mean, he he is just very hot and cold from what I've seen. Like, some of the faces he makes in this movie, some of the dialogue, especially, we're getting to it soon, uh, after this scene, like, it's just very comical. And that's down to the writing, too. I mean, the writing in this movie isn't really that great in the logic. But, uh, yeah, Cuba, he is very hot or cold for me. It's either, you know, obviously he won the Academy Award for Jerry Maguire. He's awesome. Years after movies. this. Yeah, not long after this. But... Yeah, and then there's this movie. <laughs> so it's just like, or what was that other movie? Chill Factor with him and Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Chill Factor. <laughs> Shit God, like that. That's a fun movie. Um, no, seriously though, this was, I mean, Cuba was still young. I mean, he's still coming off of uh, the um, Boys in the Hood coattails. His brother, Omar Gooding, was also working his way up in the fame uh, area as he was... Uh, Hosting uh, f- uh, fun and cra- wild and crazy kids on Nickelodeon. That was Omar Gooding, Cuba Gooding Jr.'s brother. At around the same time as these the as these films that we're talking about right now. But no, um, he's he's still he's still young. He's still fresh. He's still green. That's what I'm looking for. That, that, that that's the term I wanted to use. He's still green in the industry at this point. Ninety three. Um. You know, three years later, yeah, he would win the Academy Award. But if you can recall, he didn't really follow that up with much. Just no. stuff <laughs> for, a, for a handful of, of, of years. Um, I don't know. I'm not saying this was a big comeback or, or a groundbreaking role, but um, where are you at on radio? Radio radio was okay. That, to me, that was just like a generic, uh, like inspirational type sports movie. Mm-hmm. Like I've only seen it the one time back when it came out uh but he was fine in that i don't remember it being like offensive to me or anything like that but i don't remember it being great either but yeah there's definitely (laughs) 
Yeah, I don't, he's just one of those actors. I'm just like, oh man, there's no middle ground, I, is there? I don't recall being fully offended by that, or even the slightest bit of offended. Not as offended as I was with uh, um, Sean Penn and I Am Sam. <laughs> Nothing like that. I mean, that was yeah. that movie. Yeah, um, won't be on this. I podcast. just think in general, I think people have learned uh, stay away from that stuff. Like <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, just, it, it's not a good thing to. Touch I like on. radio though. I do like radio. I, I I was just curious as to what your thoughts were on the movie. Um, it's it's a movie I've actually revisited it from you know time to time. Um, in fact, it was on TV. Oh, about five six months ago, and I found myself watching it for like the last forty five minutes or so. Yeah, I've I've thought it was I've always enjoyed radio. I've never thought it was anything groundbreaking or like a huge like mega you know it's it's a, you gotta see this movie like no I've just personally enjoyed it. If anything, it's a three out of five on my on my rating ratings scale. But anyway, um, now that we're talking about Cuba Gooding Jr. back in the sewer, Travis taunts Fallon about Sykes being killed because of his not wanting to stop. Mid sentence, he just knocks him in the face and drowns him in the water, and now it's two <laughs> on three. <laughs> Simple Maybe as other that. guys is just all right with it. That's the part I like. Is like other partners just like I don't know, remember their names, but uh, like the other dude's just cool with it. He's like, ah, it's cool. He's killing one of our crew. Yeah, Rhodes, Everlast, the other guy that's <laughs> last. That's that's remaining with uh, Fallon. And yeah, I mean, at this point, you kind of want Travis to get his uh, upper his his comeuppance because he's annoying. He's not a really good villain, you know, and he's just annoying Dennis Leary at this point. So, you know, you saw it coming. So John freaks out and breaks down in front of Mike and Frank, saying that he's scared. So Steven Dorf is now coming out saying that he's scared of everything. And they share a moment before breaking spot. They they they, they spot a bus and they start chasing it down. Only the bus driver is not stopping for him and he continues to drive off. Leaving Mike to fire at the bus before Frank stops him. He actually takes out his gun and starts shooting at it. And this causes a ridiculous argument about the past during a life or death ordeal. They're talking about, you know, living in the past and shit. And it's it's really stupid. But hey, movie's gonna movie. Yeah. And the remaining three break into a flea market in hopes of sounding the alarm, bringing the police to them. Then <laughs> They're all excited. They are. They're <laughs> so happy. Hell of a security system. Excellent response time. something and i'm like they're acting like they're like they're home already i'm like yeah you found somewhere like that's good but like i don't know i think the reaction is a little over the top there like especially i mean cuba couldn't Jr. just shot a man and like they're know, right? just arguing and like about to kill each other and now they're all happy like woo, you know it's kind of funny like they're like getting smart with the security guards that stop them and shit you know these fucking gets these guards show up guns blazing only they don't 
get to reach out to the cops because Fallon and Rhodes show up and kill one of the guards before Leary gives yet another monologue, this time over the flea market's PA. And I guess someone on set thought that Leary could have been considered like an Academy Award winner or something because this man is getting so much to say in this movie. Like, I know Dennis Leary is known for his swift, witty conversations and, and, and way of talking, but still, like, why is he getting so much attention in this movie? He's getting so much shit to say. I don't understand it, you know? Yeah, and part of my problem, you know, I already mentioned I, I'm i not a huge fan of the way he fits into the movie, but also, like, Emilio doesn't really get any words back. Like, there's no banter. No, it's just there's not. It's just the bad guy just monologuing over and over again and Emilio looking scared in the corner somewhere. I mean, again, <laughs> I, I love this Leary. I love Leary to death. But he's just way too many monologues in this movie. Sorry. Sorry, Dennis. So Rhodes Everlast ends up killing the other guard before a big shootout takes place that leaves Cuba shoot he Cuba gets shot in the stomach and he and, and uh John gets shot in the leg and Rhodes gets shot dead. So yeah I, I, and I'm not buying Cuba making it out of this movie alive. I'm sorry I'm not. He definitely would have blood out from taking that fucking shot in the stomach. Um these three bloodied and battered friends they're all 50 shades of fucked up. They're bumbling around. Cuba's still making quips and jokes as he continues to fucking bleed out. And then they make it to this old bathroom where uh, Frank leaves John with Mike as he heads out to encounter Fallon once and for all. And there's this, like, they, they finally had this, this you know, showdown. Um, Emilio and, and, and Leary. And there's, like, this one sequence where, like, there's an overnight guy with his headphones on, jamming the music, and he's pushing this power lift, and Fallon's just standing in front of him in this path, just shooting at it, and then finally the guy, like, after, like, three or four shots, he notices, like, there's a guy fucking firing a pistol right at my direction and shit, and he finally takes off and doesn't get killed, just runs off. It's kind of a funny moment, even though it's ridiculous. And, I don't know, this... Frank is about to discover Mike and John in the bathroom, but uh, or Fallon rather is about to discover Mike and John. But Frank yells out in order to get his attention, which leads to their final fight, where Fallon delivers his final monologue because he's gotta before Frank ultimately overpowers him. And th- this make this shit makes absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. Fallon's been trying to kill Frank the entire film, actually killed his close friend, shot his kid brother in the leg, and literally threatened to rape his wife not once, but twice. But yet, he expects Frank to be a good person and help him unless he falls to his death. He's like, help me. Jesus Christ, I'm about to fall. And he actually goes over to fucking give him a hand. It's like, well, Frank actually does try and save him before he fights Fallon to his plummeting death. And it's just, I don't know. There's another split diopter shot after this as well. And I'm pretty sure that I heard a Wilhelm scream as Fallon's fallen yeah. to his death. Jesus Christ. You're Frank? Look at me when I'm talking to you. Hey! Oh. You think you hurt me tonight, is that it, huh? Is that what you think? Francis? Answer me! Fucking prick! Get up! Is this how you're gonna go out? Francis? You're not getting away. 
I know where you're going. Fuck you. Fuck me. I don't think so, pal. 1922 Deadwood Drive. That's a fucking riot. Deadwood Drive. Bet you got a nice house up there, huh, Frank? Huh? Can't wait to meet your daughter. What's your name again? Yeah, it doesn't matter. I'll never see you grow up anyways. No! Help me for Christ's sake! I need to do the right thing. Francis, come with me. Come on, Francis. You're on your own, pal. I really don't like this whole scene. To me, it doesn't quite work. It looks kind of silly because yeah. you have the scream mixed in there. You have the dumb thing where he's like, come save me. Like, so stupid. And then... I know it's just camera tricks and movie making, but this fall to me literally looks like he fell like eight feet. Like it does not look far like you would die. Like it looks like a fall you would fall right. a little bit and just be like, ah, ooh, my shoulders hurt or something like it doesn't like, but they try to make it look a lot higher, like through camera tricks and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in reality, yeah. when, when you're looking at it, like the wider shot, it looks like it's like just literally like this little loft thing that's like <laughs> six feet or eight feet high. Right. And it just looks terrible. I'm not a big fan of any of this ending. Like the flea market stuff is okay, up but this very ending when Leary goes down, I I don't like it. I think it looks cheesy. I think it's stupid that he would uh Emilio would come over and try to rescue him or uh, I don't know. I I'm not a big fan of the ending. To me, this is really where the movie kind of fumbles, in my opinion. And yeah. it's not as me- and there's a reason I don't remember it when I was a kid. And that's probably because I'm like, what the fuck is this shit? Like the only thing I remember from that really stuck in my head from all these scenes was the part where the worker comes out with the pallet and Leary is just fucking shooting at him and the guy doesn't even notice. Right. Like Leary's just blasted away. That's the only part I really remembered from this whole ending. Oh, man. So anyway, paramedics and police arrive, literally drawing a gun to Frank's head, taking Mike and John to a hospital where they are expected. They're expected to survive their, their, their wounds, although Mike's acting like he's about to turn over for eternity. Frank exits the building to his waiting wife, although we don't actually see her. We just hear another cop mention to Frank as the film fades to black. And I'm just asking... How the hell did she get down there so fast after all this shit? And that's that. The movie just ends. It's such an abrupt ending. But honestly, the film's been going on for long enough at this point. You know, we're we're about 10 minutes shy of two hours for this. And yeah, I don't know. More on that in a moment. So yeah, man, that's Judgment Night from 1993. All right, let's talk about the film. Actually... Let's talk about what the critics thought about the film in the form of Critics Corner. Take a little walk through the Critics Corner, see what they had to say about the film. Alright, so... Judgment Night has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 35% based off of 20 reviews. It's got a meta score of 46 out of 100 based on 11 reviews. 
and yeah not a whole lot else um leonard claddy from variety called it the most chilling aspect they said the most chilling aspect of the urban thriller judgment night is how indefinitely superior its craft is to its art this is an exceedingly well-directed, cleverly filmed, and edited, tension-filled affair. It is also a wholly preposterous, muddled, paranoid's view of the inner city nightmare where the slightest misstep is sure to have a fateful result. We pretty much hit the nail on the head with that review. Uh, Richard Harrington from the Washington Post felt that the movie was regrettably familiar fare and said, The filmmakers have... Ha- have made a big deal of a soundtrack that features 11 11 collaborations between rappers and rockers, but their casting consciousness is less adventurous. He mentioned the soundtrack in his review for the film, witty guy. Janet Maslin from the New York Times gave it 3 out of 5 and said that it's a tight, energetic sleeper in the action-adventure genre, manages to pack a few anti-machismo sediments into an otherwise brawny tale. James Broadinelli from Real Views says it's refreshing to know that it's not just characters in horror films who are irredeemably bad, who are irredeemably dumb. And finally, Marcus Savlov from the Austin Chronicle gave it a 1 out of 5. He said Fallon's obsessive quest to eliminate witnesses comes to more comes to seem more and more like utter madness but then maybe there's maybe that's the point it's hard to tell amidst the glared gunfire and random explosions I mean we did kind of talk about that in our breakdown our conversation about how he kind of like does take this to an extreme limit just to shut just to silence some witnesses like he's like you mentioned it when they're kicking down doors like they're just going to the extreme to make sure that they're silenced and it's like at what point do you just say, what are the odds they're going to go to the police and correctly point us out after all this shit that we've put them through? Especially now that we know where one of them lives. Yeah. I mean, I mean right? <laughs> right. So. Alright, Trivial Pursuit. Let's talk about some trivial tidbits for Judgment Night. It's funny. Little things used to mean so much to Shelley. I used to think they were kind of trivial. Believe me, nothing is trivial. Comedian Adam Carolla was a stand-in for one of the bad guy actors, Michael Wiseman, the one who played Travis. He was friends with the assistant director. It was his first foray into film. According to Hopkins, he wanted John Travolta in the lead and Kevin Spacey as the main villain, with other actors including Ray Liotta, Tom Cruise, Samuel L. Jackson, and Christian Slater either being offered or had turned down roles for the film. Yeah, I would like to have seen Tom Cruise being approached to be in this movie and what his reaction was. Um, during the filming of the rooftop confrontation between Fallon and Ray, the cast and crew were stunned by the sound of random, unexpected gunshots. The crew ran downstairs to find the 16-year-old kid with his head blown off by another youth at the same age as part of a gang initiation by murder. The army was brought in to secure the area the next day and production was moved elsewhere. Emilio asked for and received $4 million to star in this movie. He was able to get a much larger payday than anyone expected because he was available at a point where the film needed to be either go into production or had the plug pulled. And they had spent more than twice that $4 million figure on pre-production, which would have been lost if he hadn't taken the lead role. Progressive metal band Tool and rap rock group Rage Against the Machine recorded the song for the movie soundtrack, which they were not pleased with. They ended up scrapping the track, which 
hasn't been given an official release, but it was, but it's often referred casually as Revolution or You Can't Kill the Revolution. The song was leaked on the internet and can be found on SoundCloud as well as everywhere else, probably YouTube. And it's nearly eight minutes long. It's very slow, and the vocal duties alternate between Zach De La Roca and Mayor James Keenan. During the opening weekend, there was a shooting at the screening in a Bronx theater, and a local media blamed the movie itself for the incident. In response, it was quickly pulled from distribution and ran for only two weeks. This led to its failure at the box office and eventual cult status. Some of the background music during the chase scene immediately following the escape from the boxcar is very similar to the score in Predator. Both films had the music composed by Elvin Silvestri. Director Stephen Hopkins also directed Predator 2, and he wanted the score to sound like the one Silvestri composed for that film, which is why he rejected Silvestri's original score, which was electronic. During the scene where Frank is attempting to catch up to the police car, the RV passes by Patty's Pub from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which isn't located in Chicago or Philadelphia, but it's actually in Los Angeles. Universal were so taken aback by the bleak tone of the daily shot in Chicago that they thought the crew were using a matte painting. A lot of funny lines of dialogue said by characters in the film were added in later after a studio thought how the movie was way too serious or humorless. This is also another reason why the original, more horror movie-like atmospheric score was replaced with typical action, because they wanted the film to be and feel more exciting. In the UK, this film went straight to video, and funny enough, on August 7th of 1992, the Chicago Tribune erroneously reported that Ray Liotta was starring in this movie, and not Emilio Estevez. Alright, let's take a walk to the critics' corner to hear what they all thought about the film. Judgment Night currently has a Rotten Tomato score of 35% based off of 20 reviews. A meta score of 46 out of 100 based off 11 reviews. Leonard Cloudy from Variety said the most chilling aspect of the urban thriller Judgment Night is how indefinitely superior its craft is to its art. This is an exceedingly well-directed, cleverly filmed, and edited, tension-filled affair. It is also a wholly preposterous, muddled, paranoid view of the inner-city nightmare where the slightest misstep is sure to have a fateful result. Richard Harrington from the Washington Post felt the movie was regrettably familiar fare and said the filmmakers have made a big deal of a soundtrack that features 11 collaborations between rappers and rockers, but their casting consciousness is less adventurous. Janet Maslin from the New York Times gave it a 3 out of 5 rating, called it a tight, energetic sleeper in the action-adventure genre manages to pack a few anti-machismo sentiments into an otherwise brawny tale. James Broadinelli from Real Views said it's refreshing to know that it's not just characters in horror movies who are irredeemably dumb. And finally, Marcus Savlov from the Austin Chronicle only gave it a 1 out of 5, said Fallon's obsessive quest to eliminate witnesses comes to seem more and more like utter madness. But then, maybe that's the point. It's hard to tell amidst the layered gunfire and random explosions. So, there you have it. Critics kind of predictably manhandled this film. It it, it didn't win too many people over. 
you know, it's not like you, we didn't hear anything from Cisco and Ebert because I couldn't find anything from them on the movie. So, you know, there's that. And, and yeah, you know, that's it's it's just our job to report what the critics thought. Not that we give a damn. So that's what they thought. Now we're going to talk about what we thought. The form of pros and cons. Robin, get me my legal pad. It's pros and cons time. <laughs> Starting with the pros, as we always do. Core, I'm going to let you go first, man. I haven't heard from you in a minute. Yeah, um... So my pros are pretty easy. It's the first is the cast. I mean, obviously a strong cast. Emilio uh, in his prime here, late 80s, early 90s. Um, I just saw the movie recently. I'm a huge fan of Repo Man. It came out uh, a few years. It was like one of Emilio's first roles. Ordinary fucking people. That was the reference. Yeah. Yep. So uh, great movie. And uh, but yeah, it's cool watching this again, seeing Emilio in his prime and obviously Cuba Gooden Jr., Stephen Dorff, Evan uh, Leary. I mean, Peter Green, one of my uh, underrated favorite gems in the film. So Hell the yeah. cast is extremely strong, even though they don't, they're not really smart in the movie. They don't really have much to say most of the time, but uh, still a good cast and good chemistry between the main characters. Um, so I, I think that really shines through just with the caliber of actors that are in there. Um, my next pro, and it's just, this movie's just a throwback. It just has such nostalgic value for me for growing up during the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, and this film fits it right into it. It just has that look. I mean, like a couple of the shots, it looks like I'm waiting for like Streets of Fire to start back up. Like a couple <laughs> of the shots, like when they're in the abandoned Chicago, like it's just uh, I really enjoy the nostalgic factor and the aesthetic of the movie. Like they're in an yeah. abandoned wasteland. Um, so that's really good. And then my third, I think is pretty obvious, but the soundtrack, uh, you know, watching it again this time, uh, it really stood out to me like again that nostalgic early 90s with the hip-hop uh really enjoyable soundtrack uh on this movie so uh those are my pros all right um so first off like you said i love the casting with leary being a very effective and threatening villain with his cutthroat dialogue and confident stance overall um it's a very fun ride throughout from the moment things kick off until the very end even before the ride begins, I really enjoy our time getting to know these four main characters before they run into peril with all the stuff in the RV, um, all the development that we get within those, you know, opening 10 to 15 minutes with all the shit that goes on. Um, I'm just a fan of Hopkins is obviously trying to be creative and stand out with some, you know, choices that he makes. Like I mentioned during the breakdown, such as the multiple split diopter shots, or as I call them, the Palma shots. Um, camera movements during certain sequences, the fisheye lens, um, the the stuff of theory walking into the camera to end the scene. You know, it's at least interesting to watch 30 years later, you know, him at least trying to make an effort to, to stand out. Um, it's a film, you know, cinematography, c- cinematography wise, it's, it's a film full of ideas. That's the best way to put it. And my last pro is the film soundtrack. Not the score. More on that. But the soundtrack, like you said. Classic, you know, it just it, it broke um, new waves in the music industry. You know, it was a new... It, was, it seems like a very simple idea, but this was the first time it was done. You know, you're taking two genres. Or no, it wasn't the first time it was done necessarily. It was the first time it was done in bulk. Um collectively not just you know 
singles like Walk This Way and stuff. But anyway, those are my pros. Uh, how about the cons, Corey? What do you What do you not like about the film? Uh, well, I kind of already brought up one, so I'll, I'll mention that first. My first con is Dennis Leary, and it's not so much him. Like, you know, Dennis Leary's doing Dennis Leary in the movie. Uh, I just don't necessarily think it was a good fit. Like, I, I think there's a few too many monologues uh, in the movie. And, you know, I Leary, I'm not saying he couldn't be intimidating, but in this movie, I don't know, it just kind of comes off dominant, like just the, his actions. Like, I don't it, I'm not intimidated or really scared or worried for the characters at any point. He just kind of comes off as this dumb, dumb who murdered somebody in front of him. And now he's kind of just chasing them and randomly killing people. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think it's a great fit. I, I think Leary's a much better fit in other movies. And I think, uh, it's just, I don't know. I, I would have rather had a stronger, more silent type, perhaps, and maybe have one of those other side characters in the gang talk a little bit more, I guess. I don't know. Just something a little bit more intimidating. So that, that was my first con uh, that I mentioned. My second one is just the writing and logic. Like, this movie, I don't want to say it's a dumb movie, but it kind of is a dumb movie. I mean, there's several lapses <laughs> in judgment. I mean, even just, like, the beginning part. When they like get the camper stuck and they witness a murder, I'm like, hey guys in the gang, like why not just take this a few blocks away? Like, you know, like up to this point, like they really haven't seen anything. Like, why murder them right in front of them? So now you have to murder four more people. You know, it, it's just like there and there's such gaps in logic. Like, or when they're in the sore and they can't climb up the ladder at first for some reason. Like, oh no way, we'll make get up that ladder. Then they kill Peter Green's character, and then now we can make it up the ladder. It's just yeah, stuff I didn't get like that either. That, like, that, 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 yeah, I forgot to mention that because that didn't make sense to me either. Yeah, it's just stuff like that. And like the whole RV thing, like pulling an RV into uh, one of the biggest cities <laughs> downtown. And then, oh, where Jesus. are you going to park it at? Like just stuff like that. Like you can tell not a lot of thought went into it. It was more just based on the star power and just, uh, you know, the fun ride. So I appreciate that. But yeah, just the writing and logic to me is just nonsensical. My third con is like i know they're in a bad area and there wouldn't be a ton of people out but come on like you could have thrown a couple extras in there like it, it just like, <laughs> seemed like completely abandoned like to me it, it looked like they're in uh fucking escape from new york at certain points or something like that like yeah. it's just like it kind of stretches credibility a little bit a city that big they would see that few people in that area uh but that's the cons for me all right yeah i got a few um Frank's wife is so underdeveloped. I talked about that before. I'm going to mention it again as a con. Um, first off, I hate that she's only represented on screen for just the opening minutes of the movie. Um, at least cut back to her at the at, at home or something once or twice during the film, showing that she's at least worried that her husband's out and about and hasn't been home and no one can get a hold of him or his brother John. Um... Which I guess in turn also makes me think about the end and how we talked about how just it just kind of rushed, you know. Fallon dies and the film is over within like two minutes. It's like, all right, we can't wait to cut the end credits, and it's and, and we could have used the opportunity to maybe. And this is gonna sound like a contradiction given my next con, but you know we couldn't have thrown on like maybe five more minutes to see like maybe see him reunite with his wife outside instead of just hearing that she's out there and then the film ending like i don't know it all goes back to um christine harness and her not really you know maybe they filmed stuff with her and it got cut 
because the film is already long enough. I don't know, but I just feel like, um, not saying that she was like a A or B list actor at the time, but you know, she was coming off a of dazed and confused, and I would hope she would have been in a little bit more of this movie. But I digress. Um, I hate how Piven goes out because it's so uncharacteristic of him to be doing such a suicidal thing. I've never liked this moment. It's so obvious that they're going in this direction when you watch the scene play out, but I still think it's unlike Ray, especially how scared he's been, you know, been portrayed as until this moment. To actually think that he can bark in his way out of life, for, uh, out of this wife or death situation, or, or death or death situation if you're Ray. It's just uncharacteristic. Um, and finally, Alvin Silvestri's score. Uh, usually I'm ranting about scores. If I, if I bring up a person's score on this podcast, I usually have great things to say about it. In this case, I don't because it, I've heard it before. It's recycled. If you're a fan of Party Letter 2, then you know it's up. It's just a recycled, mishandled mess all around of this. A lot of it's recycled from Predator and Predator 2. It doesn't even fit some of the scenes it's, it's supposed to be representing. It's just they're running in the, the alley or something or running through a train track yard or a, tra- a train yard and you just hear like all of a sudden like jungle beats because that's what Predator 2's soundtrack sounded like. And it's just... I don't know. I, I, it makes me question how much of the score Sylvester even worked on and just didn't pull from other stuff that didn't work. But again, like for the first one, like the second con, I digress. So those are my pros and cons. Um, let's move on to uh, Mulligan moment. What we would change about the film. If you had to do it all over again, would you make the same choices? So I would most certainly do something about this runtime. 110 minutes is a bit much for a movie like this, especially when we get to moments that halts the momentum just as things are getting exciting. I'd probably cut out the time in the apartment unit with that family since it doesn't even go anywhere and have them run straight for the roof once they get into the apartment complex. Just head right up to the roof and discover the ladder or cross, whatever you want to call it, on their own that would have eliminated about five ten minutes right there but they didn't so we're stuck with what we got and also maybe trim a couple minutes from leary's monologue at the train yard or any of the other 20 monologues he gives in this movie maybe cut one or two of them out completely maybe (laughs) you know anything to trim this 110 minutes because it's for an on the run movie especially like this 90 minutes tops 85 to 90 minutes and you got the perfect sweet runtime but 110 you're just shy of two hours you were asking a lot for me to watch this from start to finish and not at least stop it once you know so that's my main mulligan moment that's what i would change about this film how about you man yeah so mine's kind of similar um to yours like i agree i think it should be a lean 80 to 90 minute movie um, it does feel a little long, you know, I'll be honest, just rewatching it, um, you know, or, uh, yesterday for the podcast, it felt a little long. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think even though this might sound contradictory, but I think at the beginning there should be a little bit more characterization, just not a lot, like literally just maybe spend five minutes, like get a little bit more backstory for Emilio and his wife, kind of like you alluded to just it would make me care a little bit more about the character. I mean, I get it. Uh, Emilio is a family guy. He's got a wife, a kid. 
I get all that, and I relate to it, but I think just seeing the relationship, just even for a minute or two, would kind of help. I mean, all you see is the the wife kind of complain to Emilio, so that's right. all I got. Mm-hmm. So just like a, a complaining wife and Emilio, that's pretty much it. So I, I just wish a little bit more at the beginning and the setup, just a few minutes, and then I agree, just either cut uh, the apartment scene or uh, one of <laughs> Leary's monologues, or, you know, you could really streamline quite a bit there you know the rv at the beginning maybe don't spend as much time in there i don't know but there's definitely stuff that could be streamlined and just to get to know the characters a little bit more and just have a little bit more of a base caring for them essentially that would be my well then you want to keep some of the rv stuff because that's you know that's all your character development right there yeah i guess i don't know i i I just wish there was a little bit more before the yeah, beginning and then just cut more of the end. Like, honestly, the sore scene, mm-hmm. I, I, I know Peter Green's character dies. I don't like any of that, really. I think it's dumb. They don't climb up the ladder. I think Cuba Gooding <laughs> Jr. isn't good at it. Not really a fan of that whole scene, so maybe get rid of that and just rework it. All right, well, out with the bad and in with the good. Let's talk about our finger-looking-good favorite moments of the movie. <laughs> finger-looking-good. <laughs> I think we both have a similar answer. For me, it's the rooftop scene. This is my favorite scene in the movie, the rooftop scene with the ladder. I've I've always loved it. It's always been a standout moment for me from the moment I first watched it until just yesterday. I just, I, I enjoy this scene the most. I do. Even though I think Ray's uncharacteristic, you know, bargaining antics, his his death is still, you know, something that sticks out for me. And uh, overall, like, I just, I, I don't know what it is. I still feel the intensity, even though I know what's going to happen all these years later. It's just, it's, it's it's a wild scene, man. So that's my answer. I, I got a feeling you got the same one. Oh, yeah. I, easily the highlight. I mean, you know, you brought it up a minute ago. Like, I, I do like the camaraderie in the RV. I, I don't mind the flea market stuff. But yeah, the, easily the um, the rooftop scene is the best. Like that's it's a really good idea to have the ladder going across because I, I you know maybe that's a thing that doesn't happen, but I could see that being the case. Like right. in the ghetto, you know, the kids like to get in between the buildings. I could see something like that existing. So to me, it doesn't really stretch credibility or anything like that, and I, I you know it adds a little bit of extra peril. So I yeah I really enjoy that. Um, yeah, and then it's good having the uh, protagonist and the antagonist on separate sides of the building. They can't really get to each other yet, but this is like the first time since the murder at the beginning where they get a good look at each other and some interaction. So I think it's a well thought out, well set up scene. So yeah, easily the most memorable of the movie. Alright, let's reveal who we thought our MVPs of the film were. Alright, now you might think I'm a little biased. But I take my job as a presenter very seriously. I will show no favoritism. I am here to honor excellence. The most valuable player is... This is going to be very interesting for me because... The person I have, you didn't like. I mean, for me, it's Leary. Leary's really bringing it with his big villainous, you know, his first big villainous role. He's threatening, he's smart, he's got a way, he's got his way with words, and he's very intimidating. I think he's so good in this movie... Definitely his best performance in anything until Rescue Me came around in 2004. Um, but that being said, you thought the opposite. Who's your MVP, brother? <laughs> um, so it's kind of a tough one because 
you know, Emilio, he's just kind of bland in this movie. Like, there's a lot better um, Emilio um, performances. So I wouldn't necessarily pick him. Uh, Piven, you know, Piven does a good job. He's kind of slimy, but it's hard to say he would be my favorite. Steven Dorff is good for what he is. Um, you know, Leary's the easiest choice, but honestly, to me, like, I know he dies, but I like Peter Green, man. I just want to see more Peter Green. You so just he's love my Peter MVP. Green, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I'm picking him. I, fucking I, I love Green. <laughs> I love Peter Green. I love them. Uh, You're a big fan the of the mask. Yeah, I love the mask. That's uh, that's a great Jim Carrey movie. Uh, but he's good in the villain of that. I think he could have played the villain here. I wish he wouldn't have died, um, you know, three quarters of the way through the movie. But I, I like him joking with um, Leary and stuff like that, being his right-hand man. So I'm picking him just for my love of uh, Peter Green. All right, all right. All right, let's get physical in the form of physical media. Judgment Night was first released on VHS on March 9th of 1994. Later on, actually a week later, it came out on Laserdisc. Both releases from Universal. Um, As it goes in the early 90s, films came out on video for rental only. And then about 9 to 12 months later, they would have a sell sell through. You You were able to buy it then uh, at a much cheaper price. Because back in the day, when you wanted the, if, if it wasn't priced for sell through at first, when it first came out, like big movies like, I don't know, Mrs. Doubtfire, Independence Day, if it made a lot of money in theaters and was a big hit, then chances are when it came out on VHS, it was available for sale and rental on the same day. Whereas movies like Judgment Night, typically the film would come out, let's say, like in this case, uh, it was March. The. VHS that was just for rental, unless you have a laser disc, unless you had a laser disc, uh, unless you had a laser disc player, you could play that. You could buy those like DVDs. They were on sale. You couldn't rent those. It was, they were just for for um for sale only. But um, no, the VHS wasn't available to buy unless you were buying a used copy of the video store when they were taking them off the shelves to uh, reduce inventory. But no, like about a little bit less than a year later. So let's just say January of 95, this probably came out for sale, you know, in like your Suncoast or Saturday matinee stores in the mall. And uh, yeah, uh, speaking of sale through, uh, DVD was out, you know, straight up just to buy. And I guess in some stores rent as well. The DVD came out eventually on April 7th of 1998, the Bare Bones edition. And then it wasn't released until... January 8th of 2019 on the Blu-ray format, which is how you can get it now. This is the most recent edition released through Warner in their archive uh, series. And um, yeah, the, the transfers you know, updated. Um, I think they beefed up the soundtrack from a 2.0 mono to this 5.1 stereo. Not to mention there's a couple of special features, but... In my opinion, if this doesn't get a 4K release within the next few years, then I would guess a boutique label like maybe Shout Factory will pick this up. They'll do a restoration on it. They'll probably put out the put the film out in 4K and you know add some new features. Maybe they'll get like an interview with Emilio or 
Peter Green or someone. You know, that's speculation. That's just usually how these things go. But as of now, the most recent copy of Judgment Night was released five years ago from Warner Brothers on Blu-ray. You can still buy it now. It's actually on sale, I believe. So yeah, check it out. It's time to give out our final effect ratings. How would you rate this one, Miles? And double feature pairings. Yeah, we made a great pair. Corey, why don't you go first, brother? All right. Um, so my final rating, you know, this is an enjoyable movie, but would I say it's one of my favorites? I mean, it didn't make my top five list. So, you know, obviously it's not one of my favorites. I would give this a solid two and a half stars. Uh, I think it's a mid-tier film. Uh, is it? Does it have some nostalgic value, like I've said, just because of when I grew up? Yes. Uh, is it kind of stuck in my memory because I've seen pieces? Sure. Does it have a great cast, like I mentioned? Absolutely. But there's just... It, the movie drags a little bit, even watching it today. I just felt it kind of dragged a little too much. There's a couple scenes for me that don't quite work, like the ending. Um, but overall, it's still enjoyable, I think, especially if you're around our age or even older. You know, if you grew up or were around during this time period, I think it's a good throwback. It's definitely underrated. Like, you don't hear as many people talk about the movie, uh, you know, for obvious reasons. I mean, it was a box office bomb and. You know, a lot of these actors aren't really around nowadays, so yeah, it doesn't surprise me that people don't necessarily talk about it. But it's one of those where maybe if you haven't seen, give it a shot. It's a good blast from the late 80s, early 90s. It'll keep you entertained for a little while. Um, and it's a fun time. And honestly, if I'm pairing it with anything, I'm going to I'm gonna make the comparison. I'm going to uh, say that this movie would go good with Jerry Maguire. You can see... The evolution of Cuba Gooden Jr.'s character from the street until he gets drafted by the Cardinals and then Jerry Maguire shows him the money. I don't know why. I just, I, those two just go together for me. I like to imagine this is a shared universe. And then he gets here. hurt on Monday Night Football. <laughs> yep. That's great. Well, I'm going to give this three and a half out of five. All biases aside, this is still a very fun movie, albeit problematic and somewhat ridiculous at times. That I still enjoy. It features a somewhat strong core, a strong group of core friends. Casting very well all together. Casted very well all together. Larry as the villain is found is a nice surprise. Given he's typically the funny man whenever he's on screen. He's not very funny here. And as I stated on this podcast countless times. I just love it when an actor or filmmaker takes risks or chances. Even better when they succeed. And Dennis Leary definitely knocks it out of the park as the film's main antagonist. You've got a red-hot Stephen Hopkins coming off of Elm Street 5 and Predator 2, stepping up and delivering a very well-crafted product where he himself, as a filmmaker, attempts a thing or two with his style. And even though they feel obvious or out of place, I still commend him for the effort. So, yeah. Overall, I really like Judgment Night. It still holds up. I always have a blast with it. I think... Three and a half out of five is fair. I upheld my reviewing integrity and gave the film a fair shake. So, so yeah, I'm going to pair it with a film that came out a year prior to, prior to this. 1992's Trespass. Walter Hill film with uh, our boy Bill Paxton and William Sadler about their two firemen who decide to search this abandoned building for a hidden treasure, but they wind up in the middle of a big gang war street gang led by ice T and, and uh, ice ice T and ice cube talk about you know being confused with names and a uh, bunch of other actors um, 
show up the uh, rappers Tommy, Tommy Lister Jr. is also in it and, and some others but yeah Watch the Hill film one of his more under underlooked films or overlooked films rather and the um, same concept you know it's these two on the run from this gang or these two gangs that they just you know just like this wrong place wrong time so and they've, they, they've both always kind of had a, a, a similar feel so that's why I picked that so yeah Three and a half out of five, paired up with 1992's Trespass. And that is going to be it for our episode on Judgment Night. The film you know damn well is getting the film, the full film effects seal of approval. One down, so many more to follow. This was your first time listening to the show, then hopefully you enjoyed what you heard and plan on coming back. Let us know what you thought by over, yeah, overall by leaving us a quick rating or a small review. You can do so on Apple, Spotify, Facebook. Leave us an email, filmeffectpod at gmail.com or wherever else you listen. That allows you to do such wonderful things. Make sure you're on the up and up on the socials and, and anywhere else for the news, updates, anything else we got to share. Make sure you're following us on Twitter or X at Film Effect Pod, the Film Effect Podcast, everywhere else. Next week, we're heading back to 1998. And returning to Horrorland without the leftovers as we celebrate the 25th anniversary of Jamie Blank's Urban Legend, a teen slasher film from the Dawson's Creek era of horror. Only this is one of the better ones. Personally, I'm really looking forward to revisiting this film and talking about it on the show. I'm also looking forward to checking out that two and a half hour documentary on the making of the film that's on that Scream Factory disc. Finally get a reason to listen to uh finally get a reason to watch it, rather. I don't think I've taken the time to, to watch that entire thing yet. But anyway, can't wait to talk about it all next week. And until then, I'm Ed. I'm still Corey. And this is still another episode of the Film Effect Podcast. Sean, send it. All right, gang. We're going to see you all again next time when those theater lights go dim and the opening credits begin to roll.